What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by ArtofMagic.com. Our guest for this episode is Adam Blumenthal. And if you don't know Adam, he's a New York magician that currently owns and operates Tannin's Magic, probably the most prolific magic store in history, and a truly incredible shop that supports an amazing New York magic community. If you don't know, go check it out. It's awesome. In the episode, Adam and I talk a lot about Tannins. We also talk about his lighting expertise and some of the magic shows that he's worked on. Tannins Magic Camp, which is a phenomenal experience for young magicians to be able to sit with and learn from some of the best magicians in the world and more. It's a great episode. I had a wonderful time. Ricky Smith is a guest host slash guest guest for this episode, so that's fun. It's always great to have Ricky around, and I know you're going to love it. If you're not already, follow us on all the social media channels and join our newsletter. We've got a great Instagram contest that's ongoing now, so perform a trick from the website, tag it with hashtag Art of Magic, and every week we'll pick a winner, and you'll get $50 to artofmagic.com, and you'll get a shout-out in our newsletter, so potentially tens of thousands of people will see your Instagram handle. So that's pretty cool. I suggest you check that out. Also, join the Magical Thinking Facebook group so you can be a part of the conversation. It's pretty rad. Search Magical Thinking. You should be able to find it. I'm happy with it, and I think it's great, and there's a lot of fun conversations going on on there. So thanks to the people that have already joined. Anyway, I think that's about it. Get into Adam's episode. Let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com, following all the social media stuff. You guys know the deal. Anyway, enjoy. It's so funny of all the people to be an audiophile and like yeah. ridiculous about it, like Tony. I it's guess he does like, spend a long time on the subway, but you know. <laughs> he just bought this new speaker, so it's a little Oh, have you heard it yet? He had it as is the other night. But yeah, yeah, yeah. How does cool. it sound? It sounds fucking amazing. It's huh. like really crazy. So it's it's like a little box you put in the corner of the room. Yeah. It's probably my friend invented that shit. Really? Edgar Chouary. We met him at Cigar Bar. Huh. He's a professor at Princeton. He invented 3D audio or something. Awesome. Made a fortune. Now he's got a cool place in Central Park. Hmm. like, And he's got all like this crazy uh, Greek art and shit. And you go there and smoke cigars. And he's... In his place? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It hits the ceiling, though. Yeah, I truly don't understand audio. It's not, like, not that there's any should be any relationship between audio and lighting, but, like, at least they, like, yeah, exist waves. in the same theatrical world or whatever, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, both I'm, waves. I'm interested that you didn't get more of a crossover when you were... Of audio? Yeah. Um, interestingly, there wasn't much of an audio per... I went to USC. Okay. In LA, which is why I have an LA connection. I um, swam in every fountain in USC. Did you really? Yeah. I did the fountain run. I Why did, did you do it? I did. A, I was going to be an architect, and I got accepted. Yeah. And I did like a summer thing for like two weeks okay. there to try it out, and I I built a beautiful chair out of cardboard. Wait, my like, ex girlfriend has the exact same story. That's kind of creepy. I was so excited about uh, being an architect, Ooh, and then they actually. said you're not going to make any money, you know, unless yeah. you're great at it. And I'm like, fuck. I'm like, I'm never like the standout. You know, I'm always like the. I it, only uh, know you as the standouts. Yeah, come on, <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, don't bullshit Dan, us, Dan, Dan, Dan and Dave are like the standouts, you know, like making money and stuff like that. Meanwhile, everyone kind of knows who I am and I'm doing fine or whatever. <laughs> like, I'm not like killing it. 
Wait, and, making money is different be- than being the standout. Like, and so I was like, I, I have a hard time selling myself. Okay. You know, I'm going to be a regular architect. You know, I'm going to design a subdivision, you know, or something and get like 30 grand for it. And that's what I'll make that year. And I was like, fuck, dude, because I can make 60 grand, you know, or something being a sub engine engineer so i was like you know or whatever like you know like not the best engineer but like pretty fucking decent at it. and i was like all right gotta switch majors and so i went to cal poly instead for engineering hmm. and then uh i never even did that wait so why did you do the fountain run so that I, I was there for two weeks your chair thing dorm. was like a high school thing right because that's my ex did yeah it it was around high school time okay. I, I don't know if it was just after high school or like yeah. junior year or something like that, but I went there for two weeks, had a great time. That shit was so scary when you left campus. Like, we went to go buy illegal liquor, you know? <laughs> we used with, to go so deep in the ghetto, yeah. And like, it was like, am I gonna die? Today, <laughs> today might be the day, and we're like, the biggest vodka you have? Thanks. <laughs> you know, or <laughs> Definitely 21, and they're like, we don't care. And we're like, yes. <laughs> we did that when we graduated. Anyway, all right, let's start this, because as Ricky points out, we'll be here till tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have already started. I figured as much. We started recording when I came back in. Yeah, that's what I figured. Oh, when we came back in. Like, just now? Yeah. Oh, okay, fine. No, that other stuff, I didn't... I mean, I Part of me that. was like, oh, maybe that would be good for Atlanta. I have that all recorded. Yeah, for humanity. Just say, yeah. You know? For prosperity. <laughs> that won't be published. That'll That's all right. Be, that'll be my Ricky J move. That's good for history. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. How does this work? It's working right now. Okay. That's it. Welcome to Tannins, Elliot. Thank you. <laughs> well, this is like a goddamn real magic store. And that's the goal. Um, when I... I grew up at Tannins, obviously. Well, not obviously, but I grew up at Tannins. Okay. Um, and with the Magic Camp and the store and all that. And uh, then I finally ended up as a partial owner and then a full owner of the shop. And I didn't ask. No, I'm just kidding. We, we, I'm just kidding. we can go into that if we choose to go into that. No, I'm just kidding. But, it's a um, mediocre no, burn. No, that's not for them, uh, especially after that. No. But no, no, my no, point no, being no. that when we... Uh, when I took over running the shop, which was later than my initial involvement in the shop, yeah, um, I was a partner in it. But then when I really took over running it, we were already in this location. But it was white walls and fluorescent lights. And, and truthfully, that wasn't actually that different than the tenants I grew up with. Um, but a big part of this for me has been turning it into what feels like a magic shop. So I kind of like that you said that off the bat. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it definitely feels like a real... Real magic. I like it a lot. There's like the whole trunk, the curtains, and like the dark, you know, the darker yeah. atmosphere. It's it not going like to mention the elephant in the room. That's Ricky Smith, who I guess if we're already recording this podcast uh, and hasn't introduced himself, Ricky Smith is the elephant in the room. Hello. Welcome <laughs> to my presence. <laughs> um, but no, there is also an elephant in the room. Literally, literally, there's like a huge elephant in the corner. We don't talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah. Um, but the elephant is adopted from a show that I had the, uh, the pleasure to be one of the, uh, an associate lighting designer on. And then finally, I took over for a new version of the show as the lighting designer. What show is it? The Elephant Room. It's an awesome show. Okay. Um, with, it's a three-person show. All three of them are amazingly talented magicians and performers. 
but Steve Schiffo is the person who might be most known to you or anyone else who might be listening to this, um, who's just fucking awesome. True. Um, no, you can say fuck. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> I prefer it if you it's, did say fuck. It's Steve Schiffo say, say and Jeff Sobel and Trey Lyford, who are three phenomenal performers. Um, Steve probably has the greatest connection to Magic, but Jeff also was a junior member at the Magic Castle. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, the elephant in the room is named Jenny. Okay. After Houdini's elephant, who was the sister of Jumbo, who was... P.T. Barnum's elephant. And I did this show, and there was this giant puppet named Jenny. And as the show wound down and it was no longer touring, uh, I had the opportunity to adopt Jenny. And it just, it's kind of awesome that people walk into the shop and don't at first see the elephant in the room because you turn the corner and you look straight into things and then mm-hmm. maybe come back and find her. And it's. Uh, what does she eat? Peanuts. <laughs> and young magicians who are bad at their pass <laughs> so those guys invented the big elephant before david williamson's new group ringmaster 1903 circus 1903 oh, oh, okay. or um but yes that's a big part of our shop at the moment and just kind of a fun little storytelling piece and a, and a decent joke too. and a decent joke yeah um yeah no this is cool what uh, so how did you how much of tannin's let me okay. Let me try and refresh. How big of a part of your like growing up in Mad? Like what element or yeah, story? sure. Um, that's interesting because it's always asked to me is how I got involved in Tannins or how I found Tannins and less about how it sort of is personal in the origin story, which mm-hmm. is kind of a more interesting and fun way to talk about it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I'm gonna flip the table on all other interviews. I did one of these yesterday, and it was totally the opposite. Um, I. I've grown up here in New York City, uh-huh. and my interest in tannins, or excuse me, in magic, more or less stems from having received gifts, uh, magic tricks as gifts for my birthday or holidays or something from my great aunt. Was um, she a magician? She was not a magician, but I think a lot of kids get a magic kit or trick. Oh, sure, yeah. For a present. Um, I'm not totally sure how she found tannins, but somehow did. Uh-huh. Maybe she gave me something that was more of a kit kit that I latched onto first, but my memory is that it was tricks from tannins. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have to be pretty young because by first grade, I was interested in magic enough to, um, I grew up again here in New York and went to school here and my school was, uh, a little aggressive, you might say, in education, in that by first grade we were writing research reports. Um, wow, okay. Are you a gifted anything? student? No, I, I'm a terrible student. Um, but we had to write a research report in so first, you did the grade. first grade. Six times? Seven times? <laughs> first grade once, kindergarten twice. Okay. Um, they started you early. <laughs> yes. Thank you for catching that and that it wasn't just that I didn't color within the lines. Yes, I did start early. Yeah. Um, but by first grade we had to write a research report on anything we wanted, uh. and I chose magic. It was truly up to the to the student to write out about anything they wanted. It was like a two-page paper. Why were you drawn to it so early? That's amazing. Well, I think I must have already... Obviously, I was already given some kind of magic prop or something that got me interested. Yeah, but I had magic kits and stuff when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, what was it that, like... You know, truthfully, I don't know. I yeah. can tell you after that research paper and how that kind of moved from there. Yeah. But I really, really don't know why I was struck at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll have to think about it. I wish I knew... Was Flossos around at the time? 
Wasser certainly was. And, and where was that located? That was next door to where we are now, and we'll get back to that. Um, although I actually have never, ever went to Flossos, and I really regret that at this point in my life. Um, but in first grade, I wrote a research paper about magic, and part of writing that research paper was a field trip to research your subject. Yeah. So my school, my first grade class, took me to Tannins, and that was my very first time visiting Tannins. At the time, Tannins was on 32nd Street. Um, and I specifically remember that the way this happened is that we went with other students who were researching things in a similar vicinity. Mm-hmm. And the two other things being written about, uh, one was the Empire State Building. So Generic. Generic. <laughs> so we went to the Empire State Building. Yeah. There were three of us. We went to the Empire State Building. We went to Tannins. And I don't remember what the third person was writing about, but we went to a store that sold seashells. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a little odd, Sounds but like those were the three things. So... Um, there were these two other people, girls, guys, I don't remember, who had to follow me to Tannins, and it was probably a pretty weird experience for them. Mm-hmm. But my memory of Tannins, and I later asked someone about this, and you know, I, my memory was that, like, uh, I, imag- I remember that the people standing behind the counters were elevated, and I, I once asked and thought that, I said, were there platforms behind the counters? Was everybody standing on an elevated platform to perform and demo the tricks? Mm-hmm. And was told no course not they were just standing on the ground and i mean i guess it sort of just a testament to the fact that i was a small child the first time i ever went to tannins and my everyone else were adults and these kind of imposing figures and that my memory is that everyone was so imposing and you know sort of standing above and performing um but besides for the recollection of the height i I don't remember a lot about that store Mm -hmm. and that may have been my only visit to 32nd street most of my youth was spent growing up at the 25th Street location of Tannins. When did that happen? When did that move happen? Yeah. Hmm. We've been in this location approximately 12 years. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I could say that a little more. We we moved here in 2000 and summer 2004, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I was part of that move, and I was involved with the company at that point already. Um, and I believe that we moved, I think we were at 20... For West 25th for 10 years before that. Okay. Which, that's 1994. That adds up about right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I probably only went to 32nd Street once, maybe twice. Okay. But my, my youth was spent growing up at the 24 West 25th Street location. Um, that's the one I went to first. Yeah. I've dated myself through the math of all of that um, as being younger than I should be, I guess. Um, but nonetheless, obviously, the history of Tannis has been pretty important, as you said, to my origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't know what really drew me to Tannins in the first place, but eventually I was spending time at Tannins. I was still interested in magic. And around the time that I was 12 or 13, I discovered Tannins Magic Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, Tannins has been in business since 1925 and the camp since 1974. Um, and I found the camp, and I don't know that I was... It sounds like a religion. It does sound a little <laughs> bit like a religion, and oddly enough, a lot of people probably would describe it that way, and sometimes I feel like I'm the last two, but I just I just acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, so I guess it really was a bit of a religion for me. Um, but I think the camp is really what first latched me on, really attached me to tannins, mm-hmm. um, and a gentleman named Bob Elliott, who... East Coast people would know. He's not super well-known in magic outside of the East Coast. Late in his life, he moved to San Diego. 
um, but he was really an East Coast guy, and he became a real mentor for me. Um, and I think kind of really introduced me to spending time at the shop. Mm-hmm. So I met him my first year at camp, and then every Saturday after that I would go to Tannins and hang out. Um, and once I found the camp and then found Saturdays at Tannins and then Rubens, uh, which was the local restaurant at the time that magicians would go to Saturdays uh, afterwards, and I would go with Bob and other, other magicians, that somewhere around 12 or 13, I guess, is really where Tannins became a, an important and central part of my life. Yeah. Well, what did that, what did that mean to you? I mean, what, what, like, I I came from a place where I didn't have any yeah. magic stores at all. Like it was like literally six hours to a like a Houdini's shitty shop. Sure, you know. Uh, you probably float a card like no one else though. No, no, I, no. I was above it. I was into magic. Okay, You're well above educated Bob enough. Homer. No, but <laughs> but I'm above a shitty prop. <laughs> um, yeah, I, but I had the internet, so like, but I never sure. had any magician. I didn't meet a yeah. magician until my first magic. Not having magic the internet is crazy years. talk. Yeah, you no, know, really, I used to get was... the Tannins and Hankley's catalogs, and it was my yeah. dream. Yeah. <laughs> when I was growing up, um, there was the catalogs that I had, because as Ricky says, uh, the catalog was sort of your entryway into <coughs> into magic. There were not, there wasn't really a website for magic. Um, mm-hmm. Tannins probably had one of the early websites. And I remember it. It still um, does. It still does. Our website's a little archaic. <laughs> oh, you set me up for a jump shot, so I took Thank it. you, Elliot, for reminding us. <laughs> We're in the middle of a web rehaul. Um, but we, it was a... <laughs> our website um, was a U-Electric URL. I don't remember what that was, but it was a hosting company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we did have one of the other websites. But, yeah. but I was, you know... I'm old enough to be a sort of a, a student of magic that grew up with the catalogs. And the catalogs I had were Tannins, Hinkley's, mm-hmm. and um, Davenport's in London, which was pretty exotic. Oh, to no be way. Yeah, that, that, is, that is exotic. That's nice. You had access to some cool I stuff. I did. Actually, Davenport's did some really cool things at the time. Yeah. Didn't always live up to the catalog hype, but I think that probably is true for most magic stores. Sure. Um, and at some point, I think I got an Abbott's catalog as well. But it was really Hinkley's, Tannins, and Davenport's that kind of influenced, you know, that. Um, where were we going with that? We um, weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, but I, I grew up with that. And well, what was the community? Oh, the influ- like? you were talking, yeah, yeah, that's what it was about. Sort of mentors and magic. And I didn't have the internet. That really wasn't a thing at the time. Uh-huh. Um, but the community was that, Again, I you know keep going back to this mentor that I had named Bob Elliott, mm-hmm. um, and then Bob introduced me to further New York magicians. And at the time, that was Harry Lorraine was a, a big influence on the New York Who's magic that? scene. I'm just He's a guy. He's written a I'm bunch of magazines and books. I'm just full of beans this evening. I'm um, sorry about that. But <laughs> this bourbon's hit me right. Okay, here we go. Um, but Bob, uh, you know, took myself and lots of other sort of young magicians under his wing, and would take us to Rubens, and and at Rubens we'd meet and be exposed to lots of other magicians. Uh-huh. Great magicians. Um, great magicians. Um, I was at the tail end of sort of the Rubens scene, and there was a documentary made of, called Saturdays at Rubens, but that was, Rubens was really key to the New York magic scene. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, to my growth and education as well. Um, aside from Bob and obviously Harry being there, there was a great sort of New York guy, mostly a stage magician, but a gentleman named Frank Brents who was, billed himself as America's Black Magician. 
Um, and right. that sort of says something about when he started in his career. And he was old, much older by the time I met him. Um, but I kind of remember Frank being a big influence on my interest in magic. He was an early partner in Monday Night Magic. Was always at Ruben. And, uh, he wasn't actually at Ruben's all that much, but he'd be at Tannins and taught me some pretty phenomenal card material that mm-hmm. seemed a little out of character for him, given that he was mostly a, a stage performer who worked with birds and ducks. Um, but people like Frank and Bob and Harry and you know, sort of other New York characters, we'll call them, mm-hmm. were key to my um, furthering my magic education and my sort of passion for being part of the community. Were there any people your age that you were yeah, kind of bonding with and growing with? I had a, a great friend at the time named Gavin Blankenship who every two or three years will pop up and you know, will show up either on Facebook or walk into the store or something like that. Um, I, I don't know why Gavin is the, the person who, latches on, who I latch on to name-wise, but like we grew up together at camp and would share crazy uh, Jeep rides to Rubens. Mm-hmm. Bob was not a particularly good driver <laughs> or should I say Bob was a terrible driver and was sort of notorious for it and thought it was amusing that he was such a bad driver and it's like drive up onto the sidewalks and like this is New York City <laughs> you can't drive on a sidewalk but Bob would Watch do it me. In, his, in his Jeep um, and Gavin and I would like you know spend the morning at Tannins and then hop in Bob's Jeep and drive to Rubens which was I think no more than eight or ten blocks from Tannins there was really no need for us to drive to Rubens but that was part of our that was part of our Saturday experience. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of good friends that I have today uh, and and some of whom are, you know, part of Tan- Tannins currently or were part of Tannins. Um, Noah Levine, who works with us once a week and yeah. also does a show He's here awesome. once a week. Noah's awesome. That's a great show. Go and see it. Noah Thursday. does a show called Magic After Hours every Thursday here at the shop, which is a combination of history lesson and magic show. Um, and it started as a, a thing he was doing that really was a tour. It, it was less magic show and more tour. It was more, here's a peek behind the curtain of a really interesting New York institution. Mm-hmm. And Tannins captivates a lot of kept, captivates a lot of people's attention in a non-magic fashion, in simply being a part of New York history and lore. Um, we're referenced in a lot of New York history books were referenced in um, fiction and nonfiction, things yeah. like The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Um, and so Noah started this as kind of a peek behind the curtain and less of a show, and it's transformed into more of a show, mm-hmm. but a really unique kind of experience. Um, but Noah's from the Massachusetts area and someone that I met at camp. Um, and uh, I mean, I could rattle off a bunch of names that won't mean a whole lot to this podcast, but a, but a lot of really phenomenal magicians that are people that I grew up with at Tannen's Magic Camp, Ben Nemzer. Uh, a good friend who uh, later became a manager here at the shop, Jared Moulton, who was my first year on staff at camp, was his first year as a camper. So maybe less of a peer or someone I grew up with, but nonetheless, camp and tannins has really influenced my social circle and you know business and personal life mm-hmm. sort of tremendously. Sure. How did, so you said that you went to, you found camp when you yeah. were you know, like in your early teens. What was that experience life like? And then the second part is... How have you changed it? How have I... Oh, that's interesting. Oh, but I want to get um, the first part And it's kind of loaded. I, get, I, I want know. the first part first. First part. Yeah. Ask it again. What was it like when you went to camp and you were like a young teenager? You I mean, know? it was amazing. Um, not a girl in sight, I'm sure. Not a girl in <laughs> sight. Um, we're up to 15 or 16 female campers Wonderful. a year now. That's out great. of... That's Ooh, like 10%. That. I don't want to talk about that. We'll get to that. Okay. Um, there's about 160 kids who come to camp currently. 
Um, but at the time, boy, when you're 12 or 13 at Magic Camp, you're not aware of the girls if they're even there. <laughs> so truthfully, I couldn't tell you if there were female campers at the time. Sure. Um, but I was into the magic. Um, I mean, it was amazing. At the time, we were at New York Institute of Technology, mm-hmm. which was the second home of the camp. Um, it started at LaSalle Military Academy, also on Long Island. Could, could there be two any more disparate things? <laughs> Probably not. Um, and there's some crazy there's stories that you hear from some of our alums, like Steve Cohen, or you know, lots of people who spent time at camp mm-hmm. of LaSalle. Um, that was never a part of my Tannins experience. Sure. But we were at um, New York Institute of, Te- uh, Institute of Technology, and um, it was kind of a crazy building. It was a large, massive dormitory, and the rooms were, you know, eight to twelve campers. Um, Whoa, that's huge. Yeah, they were. They so were it was like big bunk beds and stuff. Bunk beds, and it, well, and it was a really kind of social cool. experience. Yeah. Um, and I, I do kind of miss that actually. Our camp is camp is phenomenal and we'll talk about how things have changed and you know how much I love where we're at now mm-hmm. um, and the growth but uh, it's at a really plush it's a Bryn Mawr College which is an all women's college at this point and they or has always been but for us we're there at this point and it's a very different experience and I, I have I do have strong sort of nostalgic memories of that kind of very large expansive dorm yeah. um, and the the magic bonding and teaching and just social aspect that was even the non-class periods. Yeah. Um, but at the time, we were probably about 100 campers, maybe, mm-hmm. each summer. And uh, it was a great learning experience for me. And really, the time that I was doing the most magic in my life was when I was spending summers there and working towards putting an act together, however terrible it may have been. <laughs> um, there's an annual, there's a camp competition at Magic Camp, and that oh. happens to this day. Um, it's the first day of camp, and everyone everyone who would like to competes, and anyone who places in the top four of their category, there's close-up and stage, and there's junior and senior, uh-huh. gets to spend the week working on that act and then competes again on the final day. And I competed every year, uh, never placed. Um, but it was, uh, you know, just the time spent building up to that and then the time spent during the week working on that act or working with some on something else. Uh, it was a, a great learning experience for me. Sure. What did you learn? That I should leave the magic, the performing of magic to other people. Um, <laughs> and that my... But you competed every year. I competed <laughs> every year. <laughs> That's so true. That doesn't um, happen to most kids. But, no, I mean... I kind of say that jokingly, but I think secretly maybe I did learn that I wasn't that magic was super important to me and would always be a part of my life. That maybe I, but that I wasn't going to be a performing magician. Yeah, I didn't take um, it as a joke, and I yeah. don't mean that as no, an offense to not. you. I mean, like that's a valuable lesson yeah. to learn. Um, I, Absolutely. you know, to this day, my involvement in magic is in sort of the the retail aspect, but I think that that's only a small part of it. It's sure. mostly in the community kind aspect. of the, the community aspect yeah. and the the engagement and the education aspect the passion um, and also you know I spend a lot of time we we've sort of alluded to it but I also I was educated in college and we can jump back to camp in a second but mm-hmm. as a as a lighting designer mm-hmm. um, and I spend a lot of my time these days working as a lighting designer for magicians mm-hmm. um, and actually that's something that I kind of was always interested in but then learned a little bit more about at camp um, but I would, you know, I would be, we'd be spending time um, 
late at night at camp working on our acts and you know I had friends who were far younger than me or were older but any really anywhere in the spectrum of experience and age who would help me build an act and some of those things were things were acts that I actually was very proud of yeah um, maybe the material was better than I was as a performer but uh, I, I learned a lot about myself um, personally and magically and you know at camp um, and we're posing for a picture with we're Ricky right now pictures. Oh, yeah. um, but camp was a tremendous educational tool for me, again, both personally and professionally. Yeah. Um, maybe, I guess, talking about where camp has gone over the years, you kind of asked about that. Yeah. Um, we moved to a new campus, obviously, as I mentioned before. That's Bryn Mawr College. Mm-hmm. Um, camp's always evolving based on where magic is. Um, Where's magic? That's a good question. Magic's always changing. Uh, yeah. But I w- when I was a camper... It was manipulation acts. Mm-hmm. It was um, it was cards and birds and balls and um, anything that was super skill driven. Uh, I always did a talking act. I was always performing in the stage competitions and always did a talking act, except for one year when I did a stage act that was, I mean, excuse me, a silent act that was. It's okay. <laughs> we don't talk about that here. But I was I was usually doing a talking You've act, said too much. and that was not particularly trendy at the time. Yeah. Um, the now it would be right now it no. would be much more so, um, uh. and close up was popular but not super popular. Um, I'll go off a little bit on a tangent to a a year when we had a we have campers from all over the world come sure. to camp, uh, even more so now than when I was younger. But we had a well, uh, not now. No, as a Trump joke. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, very a little too timely. I didn't even realize where we were going. But yes, anyway, okay. go ahead. Yeah. We may not. Yeah. Um, but we had a, a, a funny story is a camper named, his name was Alex. I can't remember his last name at this point. Uh-huh. I really should be able to. Um, but Alex made it into the finals in close up. And at the time, the close up competition, like, I don't want to say it wasn't taken seriously. It absolutely was. But like the focus was always on the stage competition. Uh-huh. And that's where the money making magic is. And if I remember correctly, because to this day, the finals for most of the comp for the three out of the four competitions are the day before the last day of camp. Uh-huh. And we run the finals of the stage, senior stage, the older kids stage competition on the last day. So this year, the year that I'm referencing, I think that was the case at the time that we still only ran one competition on the last day. Maybe more. But this year we definitely ran the senior close-up competition on the last day. Mm-hmm. And Alex, who had made it to the close-up competition, the finals... Wearing a pink bunny suit, yeah, um, was competing again for the at the end of the week in the finals, and we had a special guest that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Copperfield joined us. Okay, we can if we get back to it, we'll talk about sort of David's connection to Tannins, which is fairly large. Um, but David was perform. Uh, David came and showed up, and no one knew he was coming. I'm sure that the staff and, the, and our director, Terry Cook, knew at the time, but certainly the campers, which I was one of at the time, didn't know. Yeah. And Alex, in his pink bunny suit, did his act. Unfazed by David Copperfield sitting in the audience, yeah. asked for volunteers and said, Sir, would you help me? Pointing, gesturing to David Copperfield. And, of course, David came up and he goes, My name is Alex. What's yours? And David goes, David. And I'm not sure that he was super amused by the, uh, the joke. Of who are you? Yeah. Um, but Alex in a pink bunny suit performed his rather phenomenal close-up act. And I don't think the pink bunny suit really had anything to do with the context of the act, but it was a great act. 
his close-up act for Copperfield. And, you know, that's, again, one of those memories that I have of camp back yeah. in the day. Um, so was the bunny suit just a non-sequitur? I think so. Okay, that's my memory of it. Okay. I don't think there was a payoff to it. Um, I think it was part of the act from the start. <laughs> I'd love to say that he put it on just because David Copperfield was in the audience. <laughs> But again, that he none of us knew that he was going to be in the audience. Yeah. So the the bunny suit must have been part of the act from the start. Um, but I, that's a camp story. Okay. Yeah. So how has it changed? How has it changed? Yeah. Um, oh, well, we were saying that, yeah, stage competition was a big part of it at the time. And, uh-huh. and certainly as kind of fads and interest in magic changes, we're much more close-up focused these days. Uh-huh. Um, the kids are... You know, the, the close-up program is far larger than the stage program. Same with the competition. Um, we have a lot of kids who come to camp who are flourishers or interested more in the technique than the performance of it, and that's totally fine. But it's it's definitely, you know, every summer we have to kind of reevaluate where we're at and what our what the audience is and what the kids want to learn. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want to call them kids because we have um, we have campers or students that from all the way from twelve to up to twenty. Sure. So there's young adults as well. Um, but it's always an, it's an evolving program and mm-hmm. figuring out the best way to teach and educate and share the information that the campers want to learn. Um, so at the moment, it's a, it's a fairly kind of technical uh, camp and less towards the performing side. But again, that changes every year. And we're always trying to kind of remind campers that there's a, it's a really happy medium between the two. Um, so camp has changed, you know, and focus that way, but it's a, um, otherwise it's just simply grown. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, when I went to camp, I think we were approximately a hundred campers. We're at 160 now. Um, and every new camper is another person to meet both for the staff, but more so for the kids that, you know, when you're into magic, a lot of our campers come from all over the world, but all over the, more so all over the country, probably about a dozen kids that are international. Sure. The rest are, you know, from America, but from really all over the country. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them don't have the opportunity to meet other magicians in yeah. their life. There may not be a local club or a local magic store and the internet may be their best tool to meet other magicians, which is uh, something I didn't have as a kid, but it's definitely a great way to meet magicians. Yeah. But it's different than having the opportunity to spend 24 hours a day for a week with sure. with other magicians. Um, so I think it's really wonderful to see some of these kids come and meet another magician face to face and share information and and learn from someone. Um, and the sort of diversity of campers that we have now and the number the additional number of campers every new camper is is another kind of experience for uh, someone to have mm-hmm. and they meet another kind of cross-section little uh, facet of magic of or another facet of the country another facet of magic mm-hmm. um and the more campers that can join us the more kind of you know diverse and interesting the uh, the camp population is sure yeah as somebody who who puts on a camp for learning magic and owns the most famous magic shops in the world. How how does how how do you get started? What what's the path? What is the path? Um, yeah, I was fortunate enough, obviously, to have tannins as my path. Mm-hmm. I can't say what that is for someone who doesn't live so close to a brick and mortar magic store. Um, but I think the path in magic is obviously to educate yourself any way you can. Um, we meet kids all the time who come into the shop who are totally self-educated and you say, how did you learn that move? And they say, I taught myself to do it. And 
they had to have some influence. They had to see it somewhere. They're not inventing moves totally out of thin air. You, you know, if, if you're talking about a snap change, the concept of a snap change came from somewhere. Yeah. They saw someone do it. But sometimes it's just a performance, and maybe they are wholly self-educated, which is always really kind of interesting to see what they bring to a move then, right? And what they can bring to a slate when they've really kind of reconstructed it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but my path to magic education and what we try and impart, what we try and offer uh, to someone who wants to educate themselves in magic is the ability to walk into a place like Tannins and sit down at a table, which we're sitting at right now, and share information and knowledge and learn from other magicians. Yeah. Um, and I emphasize kind of the share aspect because for me, being kind of a custodian of Tannins is truly less about the retail aspect. I, I say this all the time and it kind of sounds laughable, but I don't really like retail magic. I don't like selling product. If I, if it wasn't for tannins, I would never be in the retail profession. Sure. Um, but I have so much re- nostalgia for tannins and what it means in, in a magic educational way, uh, again, mostly because of what the camp and then the Saturdays hanging out at the shop meant to me and how they shaped me as a magician, as a person, mm-hmm. um, that I like the sharing and the educational aspect. Um, when I grew up, there wasn't really a place in tannins to hang out. There was a very small table in the corner, but it was almost like, you know... Come in, get your stuff and get them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and that's, I think, why we all went to Ribbons afterwards. It was, it was simply run as a business. And one of the things that was important to me in taking over the store and the brand was that absolutely center of the room is a table. It's not a large table, but there's always at least four chairs here, and we can always add more to it. And it's simply a place for people to sit down you know, unpack their decks of cards, which it, mm-hmm. sometimes you get people who come in with like a brick and unpack all their cards all over the table and sit down and, you know, shuffle cards introvertedly or offer to show someone else sitting across from you a mm-hmm. piece of material that you've been practicing. Um, but it's a, it's a really great tool for social interaction or for educational yeah. reasons. It's one of the most important parts of the process. You know, like New York having the place to go, like the Rubens, you know, there's the one that there is today, and there's also the table at Tannins. You know, going into a magic store where you can't uh, show the trick to anyone and get real life feedback, you know, uh, yeah, the trick might work. You know, you might find the card, but you might be doing all sorts of things wrong, you know, because uh, you don't know about how it should be presented or like. Uh, what's flashing, you know, that it uh, doesn't matter because the trick is so strong, you know, that could make the trick so much better just by having that interaction. And uh, that's important. A lot of people miss out on that. Yeah. And Tannin's a very sort of protected or safe environment. One, I mean, I say that in kind of a silly way in that you can't, you know, no one's going to laugh at you here, obviously. And, um, but more so in that uh, in the 90 years that Tannis has been in business, 92, I guess, at this point, um, we've never, ever been street level. In the very early days before 1925, when we talk about Tannis, magic started, uh, starting, um, there were some street kiosks, actually, mm-hmm. that, um, that Lou Tannen uh, had. The Nat Lewis Fun Shop was uh, on street level. But since 1925, we've never been street level. And we've been in five different locations three of which I've been lucky enough to visit and be a part of, obviously. 
Um, but we've never been street level. So that means that we don't sell novelties. Uh, there's no fart spray or dog right. dew or whoopee cushions. I was going to, I knew I needed that for a chamber I know, magic I'm sorry. Um, I needed fart smoke. It would probably add to Steve. Steve would really appreciate you bringing that to his (laughs) performance. He would be very thankful, I'm sure. Very much so. I'm interviewing Um, him after the show, and I'm sure he would just tell me he appreciated that, and it really added to the flavor. um, Ooh, flavor was the wrong word to choose. Anyway, go ahead. Well, uh, no, Steve has a wonderful show, and you should very much listen to his podcast, and I'm sure we'll follow at some point. Um... But because we're not street level, because you have to show the interest to discover tannins and find the location and make it all the way up to the sixth floor of our current location, down a very dilapidated hallway. Yeah, it's kind of spooky. It's spooky. Down here. Um, we've we've spent <laughs> some effort. Phrase, uh, <laughs> we talked a little bit about making the store more magical, and um, all of the renovations that we've done in this location have been done by myself, by hand, or other people who have worked here with us. Yeah. Uh, and literally by us. Yeah. We've never had anyone come in and do this, but the repainting and the, the hand lettering of the signs in the hallway and all of that is things that we've done ourselves over the years. That stuff looks great. Thank you. The hallway itself is awesome. But you yeah. know that. I mean, like, of that, course. that's not your but, fault. But, you know, that's but. a little bit, you know, we joke about it, but, and it's a little bit by accident, but it also adds a little bit to the mystique of it. It does. And ultimately what I'm getting at is that when you come into this room, you're not fighting for the attention of the magicians behind the counter with... Um, lay people who are looking to buy a toy or a novelty or just be entertained. Yeah. If you come in the door, you have the full attention of anyone behind the counter to uh, be helped and educated and, you know, yeah. and anyone will help you work on whatever you're working on. There's not a single yeah. person who works within the walls of Tannins who's not a magician. It's pure. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're like pretty good. They, they will guide you in the right direction and try to help you. I was in here looking for a weird thing, you know, or something. And, uh, like, it took a few moments, but they problem-solved and were able to create the thing in a weird way. Yeah. And uh, it was awesome. It saved saved the day for me. I mean, even our bookkeeper is a magician. Um, And everyone who works here, you know, Magic, who works behind the counter, and yes, his name is Magic, with a K at the end of it, (laughs) has been here. uh, He left. He worked at other places. He's had a TV show of his own. Um, he's a busy performer, but he was here when actually when I was a kid, um, and he's still here working with us. And you know, takes time out of the rest of his work to be here behind the counter. And uh, Noah, who I mentioned going to camp with, works here with us. Uh, Rich is our bookkeeper, who I mentioned he's a great magician. Um, Tatanka, who works here, is someone who I met at camp. Um, I met Tatanka the other night. He's yeah. great. He's great. Um, yeah. John Cassidy, who's a phenomenal magician, who you, everyone should. Or, and comedian and prop person and balloon artist. I don't know. John's everything. Uh, John, years ago when we were at camp, put Tatanka in a box, and that's another story we want to go into. <laughs> but, uh, you know, T and a lot of other people are, you know, people that had grew up at camp and were phenomenal enough personalities and individuals and even ignoring their magic. He's a great magician, but good person. Like, we really like to hire people who are good people. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people who work for us over the years are people who have come through the ranks of tannins as customers, as campers, um, and it's a very close-knit community. Yeah. Thank you. But it's also very open. Like, anyone that comes here can join it. It's not like a Absolutely. closed circle, and it's a really beautiful, open, and Welcoming. also very helpful community. Yeah. Uh, there's still, like, the Saturday group 
that meets there. You can meet David Roth and Soul Stone. Yeah. You know, which is delightful. And then you can come to Tannins and hang out and get lots of help from great magicians. Uh, yeah. it's, it's probably like the strongest hub of New York magic. There's like all these disparate groups, you know, like the Conjuring Arts is wonderful. And then like there's David Blaine and a few other groups, you know, hanging out mm-hmm. like Steve Cohen and uh, the Theory 11, the Dan White show, you know, mm-hmm. like all these things are happening, but they're kind of disparate. But one of the main things is uh, Tannins is a place where you can come and like actually learn good stuff and hang out and then. They will also guide you on your path to whatever else you want to learn. It's a really great treasure to have. Yeah, I, I I'm jealous. <laughs> I wish I wish that this was. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, we're physically a very small footprint these days. Yeah. Um, and that's you know partially because we can ship to you from all over the world or to yeah. all over the world, but from all over the world as well. I mean, we represent a lot of different manufacturers all over the place. Most of our inventory comes out of here but there's opportunity to get it from various places direct people but it's amazing how much we can cram into the the little drawers that we have behind the counter that are three and four stores old i'm not sure how long we've been carting those around and it's crazy you can't see them listening to this but there are these old drawers that it sounds silly but they were they were in the back of the old store and for me when we moved here i wanted to make them a focal piece uh they're concrete lined they're fireproof Holy Which is shit. great because two or three of them hold flash paper. <laughs> so it's great that they're fireproof. But beyond that, it's amazing you know, how much is stored in these drawers. Yeah. Um, and it's both literally and kind of, you know, metaphorically, uh, the things that are hidden here at the shop. Um, but, you know, again, Tannins represents a lot of different things for a lot of different people, and myself included. Um, but we're just a small piece of the New York magic community and the magic community as a whole. Yeah. But we're happy to be whatever part we can be of that. It's definitely part of the whole. You know, I had the catalog when I was little, and I, I did my first magic show for my sixth grade class. And uh, sixth grade, I'm from the West Coast. You make your East Coast trip, and you go and see all the monuments and stuff like that. And uh, what I wanted to see and is the reason I didn't see the Statue of Liberty until uh, Danny D'Ortiz came to visit was uh, because I skipped that day and my teacher took me and like two other kids to Tannins and I got a What set a up. fucking awesome teacher. Yeah. yeah. Wait, that's two of us then that yeah. had, had an educational experience that took us to Tannins. Yeah, it was my dream. I was like, would I get to go there? And I was so excited. And it was like this tiny room and... Uh, I didn't feel super welcome unlike you would feel today if you came in. You know, I felt like, oh, get my stuff and leave. You know, and I bought a set of color-changing knives that didn't open. You know, it's like... <laughs> Those they, were they, t- they, a Tony Spina designed. Yeah, they were designed um, not to open. They did the they paddle great. perfectly. They'd you know, perfect and, for the TSA these days. Yeah, and I, I still have them. You know, I, I was so excited. I, I was reading about them in the catalog. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't know, but, like, that was a great experience. No, people come to Tannins, and, like, this is their New York experience. Yeah. We have a... It's funny that I'm going to mention him, but we'll mention him by name, Jude, who's a a magic camper of ours, who was here today, 
who lives on in Seattle on the West Coast and comes to New York all the time. And his mom is always like, we're going to New York. What do you want to do? You want to go to the theater? You want to see the Statue of Liberty? Should we sightsee? Go to a great restaurant? He's like, nope. I'm going to hang out with tenants. I'm going to go work. It's the kid who like volunteers to help out. He helped us make Svengali decks today. We hand make our Svengali decks here. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's kind of fun to see that there are people who they're still, yeah, that's what you're seeing. On the I wondered what right that now. was. I was like, <laughs> um, but it's kind of fun to see that, you know, the same passion that I had for the store when I was a kid, like that it, that it works, that it's still there. You're doing something right. I hope so. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're doing yeah. a lot of things. I didn't well, mean that to be demanded. Uh, yeah. I feel like we've talked enough about this. We can talk about the other things. I think, I don't know. Or okay. more tannins. Well, no, I, I just, I mean like it's important to you. Yeah. It's part of your life. It is. You it's know, a it's a big line. part of my life. Um, and it's opened doors to other parts of my life. You know, I alluded to the design work and obviously the the passion for the education of the camp. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Tannins is physically a big part of my life and my day-to-day as the owner and, you know, operating Tannins. But it's sure. also educated everything else that I do. Yeah. What do you also, think about the lighting in here? I think that it's really good. Um and I think it's funny that you say that because I don't know if you're alluding to the fact that for many, many years after I did the big uh, repaint and rip down the fluorescent lights and like we had like clip light, we had like work light, like, you know, you're going to hire some people to come paint your house. Yeah. Uh, they throw up a bunch of like really awful lights so that they can see whatever. Like yeah. we had some really bad lighting in here for a long time. It was a, it was a laughing funny? joke of the store. Yeah. I like, so... I was in college when yeah. Instagram was a big thing. Okay. And for Christmas one year, hey, you know, I don't really want much, but I would like likes a really good light because I'm okay. super into Instagram. Sure. And I love it, and I like I would like a light so I could set up cool pictures. And they got me one of the damn like <laughs> carpenters work lights. Clip lights? Well, yeah. that's. <laughs> I was like, this thing fucking sucks. It's We're like a so million tannin. degrees. You just have to learn how to use know. it. We we spent you know five, six, ten, I don't know how many years under that kind of lighting in here. Um, and I was always made fun of for it. Yeah, you had a great um, tan. I had a great tan. <laughs> um, just like Donald Trump. <laughs> nice. That's the second reference tonight. There we go. That's um, a good callback. We're in New York. I mean, it's a thing. It's safe. And I'm in California. It's safe. Yeah. Um, but no, seriously, uh, everything here from, I don't know, I think that, like, we laugh about that, but really, off, honestly, the awful lighting for a number of years from a lighting designer yeah. uh, it was the hand done aspect that we literally got up on ladders and tore out the fluorescence and put up these little clip lights and it was it was better than the fluorescence yeah. it shouldn't have lasted that long <laughs> um, but everything here from the physical space yeah. to the teaching is it. we do it by hand and we share it and it's personal I was alluding to one true. of your hobbies, but hobby. thanks for sharing. What's my hobby? <laughs> oh, not a hobby, I guess, but one of your other careers. My professions. We alluded to it a couple times. <laughs> yeah. So again, I was educated as a theatrical lighting designer. Why? Um, why? Uh, probably because of magic. Okay. I think magic probably influenced that. Uh, at one point in my life, I thought I wanted to be an architect. I think, I just want to pause you for yeah. a second. I think it's interesting... Because, like, I was into theater sure. before I was into magic. I had magic kits as a kid. I had, I saw uh, Siegfried and Roy when I was five years old. Okay. You were I lucky. saw Copperfield when I was 11. He came to my house. Sure. Tour. But, I, but I was doing theater before I got into magic. And I think it's yeah. interesting that, like, you kind of got into theater because of... Yeah, no, I, I certainly... Uh, magic and theater as uh, things that I appreciated were parallel, I'm sure. Yeah. I grew up here in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, grew up on 59th and 7th. I had a clear shot down to Times Square. Yeah. 
my parents are both um, patrons, patrons of the arts. They appreciate the arts. Um, I saw a lot of theater growing up. Uh, a show called Jerome Robbins Broadway, which was a review show of Jerome, Rob- uh, Jerome Robbins as a choreographer. And it was a review show of choreography. And I think it was Jason Robert Brown. Oh, no, excuse me. Not Jason Robert Brown. He's a composer. Um, somebody help me. Uh, if I knew what you were talking about, I would help From you. Seinfeld. He's a magician. Jason, Jason Alexander. Jason Alexander. Alexander. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, a Magic Castle Award winner. <laughs> yeah. And a big patron of magic. Um, mm-hmm. He was the host. Uh, and I think that was the first Broadway show I saw. But I did definitely see Dreams and Nightmares, which was David Copperfield's Broadway show years later. But I saw a lot of Broadway and a lot of theater and a lot of concerts and dance. And uh, I was very much taken in by the arts yeah. and performance. But definitely magic was very much the start of that. Um, but when I was in high school, I went to my, when I still thought I had a career as a performing magician, <laughs> doing illusions um, and whatnot, I went to my high school theater uh, teachers and said, Hi, I'm Adam. Nice to meet you. I'd like to take the theater over and I'd like to produce my own show. Boy, was that a mistake. Um, and they said, Great, you know, I think we can work something out, but you, in exchange, should enroll in some theater classes and maybe <laughs> do some behind the scenes maybe work learn and fill in some theater. technical. <laughs> no, they were just happy to put me to work, yeah. technically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I took them up on that, and I said, okay, great, I'll do some technical work for you if you give me the space to produce this show. Um, but I always definitely had a fascination for it. I thought I wanted to be an architect. Well, how did it go? You the can't show? Just, yeah, you can't just mention The show went it and very not, poorly. Okay, let's talk um, about it. I, what did it you was, learn? How, I was introduced was by idea? Michael Douglas. Who, Are you fucking shit, kidding yeah. me? <laughs> Michael Douglas rolled up to uh, introduce, welcome, please welcome to the stage, Master Illusionist. That's where I thought I was at the time. Master magician, excuse me. Um, no longer do I believe that any young magician, anybody other than Lance Burton, actually, should be called master magician. But, <laughs> but I was master magician Adam Blumenthal. Yeah. Um, and to this day, I'm mocked by people who were at that show, and there were about six people in the audience. Uh-huh. I'm mocked by all those people. You're going to um, be mocked by tens of people uh, it now. It sounds like it. <laughs> because I failed to acknowledge, apparently Michael Douglas, who, again, we won't get into why he was there, but he did show up to introduce me. Why was he there? I, I actually don't know. But he, <laughs> he showed up to introduce me. Uh, and what do I you guess, mean he showed up? He uh, was like, I'm he, not doing anything. He was invited. No, I, there's a personal connection. Uh, and, oh, okay. Um, he's a, per, a friend of the family. Oh, okay. Um, it, but he showed up to introduce me, and I guess extended his hand to shake my hand. And as you he, as I him. You came, as him. I came through the curtain, he was palming. And I was already into the act, and just ignored him. And he ran ran off and went to whatever other event he had for the night. Something about being super famous. Something like that. <laughs> um, but I did that show. But that show, as yeah. miserably as it. I'm sure it went. I really don't remember, but I'm sure it was miserable. Probably wasn't that bad. It was, it was maybe probably, not as bad as I remember. It was probably like better than. Thirty percent working magicians. Possibly, um, but that my was my. Show, that, I invited someone up to uh, do one of my tricks. My best friend Scott, because I forgot how to do it. So <laughs> be, be be happy about your life. Um, but that was my that was my technical theater introduction. Yeah. Um, and and I produced another show in high school and. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, said no. It's not you know architecture that interests me. It's the the same things it's the design and the creativity but i like the sort of non-permanent aspect of theater of live entertainment oh that's interesting um and i like that to watch a magic show or to see any theater 
is to see something that exists only once. Um, the design aspect, the set, the lighting, that exists uh, in perpetuity. It's recreated every night and it is the same. But once that show ceases to be performed, then then it doesn't exist. Um, but the actual performance of the show is never the same twice. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and that really captivates me. Why? Why? Because you have to be there in the room and to see it to experience and to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I'm sure you can archive it. Um, have you ever read a thing as forgetting the name of the one thing it sees? No. What is it? Of, of the thing one uh, sees. It's about Robert Irwin. Hmm. And it's this fascinating book by Lawrence Weschler. I don't know if that's how you say it. But uh, Robert Irwin, he makes all of these art pieces. But he won't let any of them be saved or anything like that. He just mm-hmm. destroys them. And they, they're all about uh, light and stuff like that. He's fascinating. No, I like that. I like the, the aspect of witness. Um, and that to see a magic trick uh, is to witness something that only exists for that moment. Yeah. Um, and the same is for theater. Uh, no performance is ever the same. Sure. And I like contributing to that. Um, you know, what I contribute to a performance as a lighting designer is a sense of permanence. What I do is repeated perfectly every night. Um, but it aids the the non sort of permanence of the rest of the show, right? The uh, the performance of it. Yeah. Um, You're almost highlighting the non. I guess in a way you could say that. Sure. Um, but sort of circle back to the little bit of the story. Yeah. Um, I, that was my magic and wanting to produce my own show was my introduction to theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went off to college on the West Coast to the uh, University of Southern California yeah. and uh, pursued a degree in theatrical design and specifically in lighting and set design. Uh, and it was a BFA program. I was in a university of like 30,000 undergrads. Mm-hmm. And there were classes that I had with two people. And wow. by two, I mean, sorry, one other and myself. There were two of us in a class. Yeah. Uh, And there was something, the intimacy of those classes um, in the larger institution was, uh, it it was amazing to have access to the resources of something so large, but the personal experience of something so small. Um, And I think, again, that sort of, it sounds a little silly, but I think that that kind of influences my relationship to magic in many ways. got you into football. Got me into football. (laughs) I'm a big college football fan, um, even though I knew nothing about anything athletic until I got there. Uh, I, yeah. Very much so. Good for you. Let's Thank move on. you. Because <laughs> um, I don't give a fuck. Good, because I was about to go on a way far tangent that was really not interesting. This. Thank you, Ricky. Um, You're welcome. But I, I didn't do a lot of magic in college. Yeah. Um, I had done so much magic in high school that I was, I don't want to say I was running from it, but like I, I did kind some. Kind of burned out, just gave it a breather. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, people knew that I did magic. I did some magic in my fraternity, but it was a little bit of like... There's something, there's something great about being known as the kid who does magic, but there's also a kind of a burden yeah. involved in that. Oh, talk about Save that. me from a fight. <laughs> I, that's not my... I don't know that I want to go too deep into that. That's not my strength to talk about sort of the burden of magic. And I, why not? Good, well, I, I, maybe as somebody who who's considers themselves not a performer, that is a burden. I would love to hear you. Okay, I guess there's something to be said there, and this is not something I've touched on or thought about, so this is a bit off the cuff. But Good, that's the There's best. a burden in having information and having knowledge that maybe you don't feel like you're the best person to share. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you... When someone knows that you're a magician, you have that information, you have that knowledge, how do you interact with them in a way that acknowledges that you have that? But if you feel... I, I'm someone who I think is 
highly educated when it comes to magic, yeah. but simply not in a position to share that information all the time. Sure. Um, yeah, you want to share it secretly. Well, you, you know? want to share it in a way that does it the, the, the does the best service to it. I'm in a position to share it maybe with other magicians. Yeah. Certainly with younger magicians. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's still always going to be someone who's a better person to be guiding and teaching a young magician. But, but I think as far I can as interacting with lay people. But, and, and exactly. And yeah. interacting with lay people. I have all that information at my disposal and they know that uh, often it comes up. People know that I'm a magician or I own a magic store mm-hmm. or I light for a magician. You know, all of the yeah. different aspects of the magic plays in my life. But am I the best person to give them that experience of magic? Um so much we so often we sort of assume that everyone has seen a lot of magic but it's really not the truth most people very few people have actually seen a live magic show um and sometimes you're in that position where you're like am i really the best person to give them that that first experience and glimpse into magic and it might not be the best person but you might be the only person maybe you're taking you know, their maybe it's self, maybe it's self-deprecating um but no but it's seriously something i consider especially because of the, the phenomenal company that i am lucky enough to keep yeah um, that I often find myself in a position that I, I really back down from that opportunity to show magic. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I wish that wasn't the case. Sometimes I think I should be a little more outgoing about the performance of magic. But I, again, as I sort of said a second ago, I'm lucky enough to keep some very phenomenal company. And I Do don't always f- want to be the person to, to... You're welcome, Ricky. To, uh, anyway, yes. Is that just putting yourself... Is it because you hang out with quote-unquote phenomenal company that you feel lesser about your own magic? No, it's not that. But, like, you know, magic is uh, a combination of knowledge and practice, right? And I can hold that knowledge, but if I don't have the opportunity to practice it, then I'm not the best person to to present it. Uh, I just wondered which side you were coming to. Is it I know I don't practice enough, or it's I practice and hanging out with Ricky. I I would like to interject. Sure. You know, like, Adam knows... A shit ton of magic and he's yeah. been around like all these great magicians and he does know a lot and uh, he's certainly capable of being the person to like pres- present a few of these miracles for the lay p- public but I think his trepidation is a beautiful lesson for a lot of other people who do just run around willy-nilly you know doing magic so poorly that it's exposed you yeah. know or something like that like yeah. they're vomiting they're, they're, magic onto people yeah there's there's a great lesson there in like self-restraint and yeah am i the best person to do this you know uh who would be will they ever see them you yeah. know yeah like well, you like you, there's some nice questions there yeah exactly you have a deep respect for the art Absolutely. because you love it so my much. involvement in magic is a hundred percent uh from a respect aspect and that's from respect, a custodial, a uh, how do we preserve and grow? Yeah. And I think too often, frankly, all of us, or maybe even my, myself in particular, think about too much about the preservation and not enough about the growth. Mm-hmm. Um, but magic is a, a living, breathing art. And yeah. how do we best serve it? And I think we can all serve it in a different way. Uh, and for myself, you know, I don't necessarily see it in the performance aspect. Uh, there's times I wish I spent more time performing magic and I'd, I'd love to and maybe at some point in my life I'll spend more time doing that. Mm-hmm. But at this point it's um, how can I help share? Yeah. Uh, how can I bring people who are in a good position to educate? How can I bring them to the the studious population? Yeah. Um, and again you know, circling back to the theatrical side, uh, I think that a lot of magic is not respected as enough of it as it could be 
outside of the art of magic. Um, and magic in a theatrical sense, how do you best display magic in a theatrical sense? And I, I love to be part of um, answering that facilitating question. that. Yeah, answering that question, facilitating it, adding anything I can from a creative side to that. Um, you know, m- magic is often seen either as a in performance uh, to the lay public, either as a sort of trivial, silly thing, you know, comedy clowning. Like, I, would, I don't want to demean any of those. Comedy is a, obviously a very sophisticated performance. And as way is more clowning. successful than magic is. Absolutely. And as is clowning. I mean, clowning yeah. is sort of a... Uh, actually, a lot of the, the magicians I've been lucky enough to pr- work with, including Steve Schiff on The Elephant Room that we've mentioned and Jeff Sobel and other people who are part of that show, yeah. a lot of that is uh, physical comedy and physical clowning and things that we kind of don't give enough respect to. Um, but how do you integrate magic into greater performance? Uh, and a lot of the shows that I've been most enjoyed as an audience member uh, or to work on, but something I didn't work on, but a great show that I enjoyed was a show called Play Dead uh, that Todd Robbins did. Uh, great. And it was one of the best magic shows I've ever seen, and I, I really believe that. Um, there was only a limited number of magic effects in it, but the magic was all done in context. It was part of the storytelling and part mm-hmm. of the narrative, and some of the magic wasn't seen as magic. It was, again, part of the storytelling, and I, I think that in a way does the, you know serves magic best yeah um and i think that's the uh, theory that gabby Pereira is sure is trying to his best and he does beautiful like yeah and very different i mean no proving just keep him in the fiction yeah but it's interesting because ricky's you know it's it's not a comparison i would have thought to make but it's 100 percent true and in my experience with Gabby's magic is mostly uh, from a single lecture and a few days that he spent here in New York, but also watching Tony Ork, who's uh, obviously yeah. very much influenced by Gabby. But it, it's card tricks. Um, I don't mean that in a negative and, or any You're kind of so disparaging way. But, it's, um, <laughs> but it is interesting, because I, truthfully, I would not have thought of the comparison, but it's, it's very, you know, makes sense. Um, but to take a card trick and elevate it to the level of a piece of theater means something. And how do you do that in a way that doesn't trivialize it? Because you can elevate something, you can elevate a card trick to theater, but at the same time you also run the risk of trivializing it. Because if you make it too theatrical, yeah, it becomes silly. Um, or it could be condescending. Sure, or condescending. Absolutely. Worse, yeah. A lot of magic runs the risk of being condescending. Yeah. I try to always be kind of... Well... You know what that means, right, Elliot? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think you mean con ascending. Okay. Ricky Smith, ladies and gentlemen. That's not, a bad, here that's not a bad comeback to condescending, to that joke. Um, no, but... but okay. <laughs> to, to bring this home again, because yeah. I feel like it's a little bit of wrapping this up every time. Uh, I, back to the lighting and theater and whatever. Like, yeah. you know, how do you make magic meaningful and a lot of that is actually taking the lessons that we can learn from magic and kind of you know imparting it or superimposing it on other performance art you know other pieces of performance um and i've had the fortune to work with a lot of magicians on shows that are kind of presented outside of the magic world they're not shows that say come see a magic show they're come see a piece of theater and or an evening of entertainment or whatever that that allow an audience to relate to magic in a in a way that is less expected. Yeah. Uh, to say, come watch magic, come see a magic show. 
there are preconceptions that an audience walks in with. Yeah. And it's nice to th- see pieces of magic or magical uh, effects presented in a way that doesn't have the... Where there's less expectation when an audience walks in. I, so, yes, I agree with you 100%. I would caution the listeners to, if they're setting up a show and they're... Ten- you know, really be honest with yourself because if you say, come see a piece of theater... Sure. And people come in there and they see a magic show and it's not yeah. theater, then you have royally lied and fucked these. Well, you know, an interesting thing, and this is a little bit not quite what we're talking about, but someone said this the other day. Um, I'm kind of breaking from this a little bit, but uh, mentalism is so popular these days. And so much of what we sell in the shop is mentalism magic. Um, and it really does seem like the, the lay public is much more interested in mentalism than magic. But the reason I get to this, and I'll say it only for a quick second, is that mm-hmm. someone said, someone who works here, I can't remember who it was, it might have been Nima, who said um, that if somebody is expecting to see a magic show and you perform mentalism, they're going to enjoy it, but they might be a little bit let down. Um, wait, am I saying this right? Uh, it, it's not necessarily visually as appealing as someone would expect. But if they have no expectation of what they're going into... Um, and you perform mentalism, it can often be far more enthralling and entertaining and personal than, than magic can be. Um, so it's really what you set them up for. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, again, it, it, was a, it was a conversation that I think was probably presented to a mentalist about how do you present what you're doing, right? Do you call it mentalism, magic, whatever? But, but that, that expectation, I, it was, the point was that expectations are so much more important in some ways than what you would do. Yes. Um, and that you can deliver the same content, but depending on how you set it up, going to have a different result. And I totally agree with what you just said, that if you present an evening of theater and you do magic that doesn't live up to that, that yeah. that's not strong. But sometimes magic out of context can be so much stronger than magic in context. Oh, absolutely. Or, or magic without a context can sure. be stronger that's, than magic absolutely. in a context. Um, 100%. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And that's, you know, that's to each their own, of course, and it's not something that we can define for individual people, but the, the point is, like, context is there either is sure. one or there isn't one, and if there is one, you have to be aware of what it is and what the point of it is. And if there isn't yeah. one, that's still a context. Context and circumstance. Um, the way you walk into a magic place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to go too far down this path, but let's talk about, you know, the concept of street magic and the way the street magic has evolved and street magic as far as like Jeff Sheridan style street magic and gra- gathering a crowd and creating a performance environment is very different than walking up to someone and presenting a piece of magic and it works for certain people it works for David Blaine they're the opposite of each other absolutely yeah um, and it's you know funny to talk about David Blaine because we're sitting in New York in David Blaine's hometown and it's something that he's done so successfully um, but a bit of it is personality and whether you have the personality to pull that off and a bit of a circumstance that if you have cameras following you around. Um, but, you know, context for magic is so important. And I think we don't talk about that enough. Yes, I completely yeah. agree. Did you wanna... People have their tricks as formula, you know, and uh, they see an audience and they just run the formula and, and not the right approach, probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like you got to figure out what you're up against and then... Uh, also calculate what the best thing to do in that situation is you know like if you have a bunch of people ripe for something and you're like fuck dude i gotta get in there and do this that doesn't mean go in there and like sit out your close-up head and do a four ace trick 
you know yeah it means yeah they need to have a beer appear out of nowhere yeah yeah something like that maybe. and you're bringing up what i think is the logical next step from what we yeah. were talking about is like we were talking about the context that we create to present magic. You're talking about the context in which magic happens, which is the most important. So like if you're putting on a show, what's the context that they're coming into? But if you're approaching somebody else, which is what we do, because Rick and yeah. I do kind of a similar sure. kind of magic, he's much more professional. I'm not so professional, but I'm, I'm willing to attack. <laughs> <laughs> but but he, you know, it's important to take into account the context of the people with whom you are Absolutely. Interacting and the people that you are accosting and interrupting or, you know, like, yeah. I'm not saying I like, that's what you are. No, I like to think of it as accosting. Thanks, though. <laughs> um, but Ricky grabs him by the anyway go ahead but I no seriously I, I like uh, I like magic in a theatrical context and I like magic that can tell a story and magic that can elicit a reaction um, and there's a difference between saying uh, telling a story that I grew up somewhere without snow or you know anything like that but also but uh, well that's about being authentic I mean you no, grew but, up in New York fuck that story because um, people know it's not true but I have had an opportunity to work with some phenomenal storytellers yes. um, and to aid in a non-magical context, yes. aid in a theatrical context. And I think you've been involved thing. in some of the best new magic shows, too, like Derek and how there's stuff, you know, like... Yeah, no, like, I was... Um, between my fortune to collaborate with Derek and his work, um, from his work with Glenn Kino in a show called... Uh, in a performance group called The Bandit, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's coming to New York, right? Which is next week. Is that how you pronounce that? A bandit. You do. Uh, I need to get a ticket to that. I hope I can still get one. I uh, wish I was here for it. I'm if not, I'm going to call Derek and ask him for a ticket. I'm bad about that. I texted yet. him and he didn't text me back. So um, I, think, I think I'm screwed. But between that <laughs> and, uh, and the, the work that came out of that, eh, parallel work, because he still does that work, obviously, and it's, it's different and important. Sure. Between that and his work with Helder and then his own show um, in and of itself. Um, uh, and then the work that I alluded to with The Elephant Room and uh, Jeff Sobel. And yeah. um, and I came onto that through a friend, actually. I came onto that through a friend who's another lighting designer, a yeah. tr- tremendously talented lighting designer. And I came on to help him. And it was coincidence that it was turned out to be a magic show and sure. that, that I actually knew Jeff through other circumstances. Uh, and then another work that he piece of work that he's doing... Um, called home and uh, a couple of different things but I, I like to work on that kind of thing um, how are you evolving as you work on those different magic things how does how does your understanding of magic and your understanding of lighting and theatrically presenting change as you work um, I think in a you know, on a superficial level it's a bit of learning to think less about look well lighting's interesting in that as a lighting designer you have to learn very quickly that um you don't want your work to be noticed necessarily. Yeah. Uh, you help to tell a story. And that um, a successful lighting is not necessarily noticed. It's not like working on a rock concert where you see lights that move around and wiggle. Yeah. Um, and that lighting in theater is really about setting a mood and an atmosphere, but also about, um, you know, when you watch TV or a movie, the yeah. camera cuts, it pans, it moves. And that's what keeps the the eye focused and interested. When you're staring at a stage, there's no camera to move. 
the audience's eyes stay focused on that stage, and you need to keep their eyes focused on that stage, not wandering. And part of what you do to keep the eye from wandering is you change the lighting. Yeah. And they don't necessarily notice the lighting. You hope that they don't notice the lighting. But the focus and the ability to use lighting to shift focus and to move the eye from place to place is the same as a camera edit in a way. Yeah. Um, so a bit of lighting for magic is learning to um, both preserve and help the magic, right? There are some magic tricks that need the lighting help, um, but not to make the lighting a, li- uh, a focus. When you're lighting an illusion act or a magician, a traditional magician, sometimes you want more like rock concert lighting uh, and movement and effects, and you want the lighting to tell a story. But it, the lighting for magic that I do is learning to move away from that and learning to take the tricks of theater and distraction, the subtle distraction, where the lighting doesn't pull focus, um, but helps hide a little bit of dirty work in the magic, or simply to keep the presentation lively and focused. Yeah. Um, so their accents. It's like it's accents, like the, sure. in music, the crescendos and decrescendos, absolutely, and the staccato um, marks and things. So you know, it's been a it's a learning experience for myself and that those are all things that I understood in principle, yeah. but it's learning to impart them. But it's also, um, you know, in some ways I feel like it's educating again. Yeah. I, I kind of go back. I feel like I go back to that word a lot, both in my magic work and my theater work, but telling it, you know, helping to educate a per- magic artist in the ways that lighting or other theatrical tools can help them achieve what they're looking for. Um, we can be an extra level of deception yeah um and an extra level of i don't know i mean lighting can exist on so many different levels it's hard to kind of to uh, fence that in sure um but it's interesting to work with magic and theatricality and, and sometimes magicians don't want the theatricality uh you know again there's a difference between this maybe an illusionist and a uh, a more close-up minded magician who wants to bring their lighting to the stage um, and you respond and interact in different ways and how can you you know aid and abet those two different performers in different ways sure uh, and there's always something to bring to the table what I, collaboration has to be incredibly important sure for shows of you know how do you educate people that are working on the show maybe they were the showrunner how do you then this is what needs to happen there well you know it's educating but it's also being educated you know i plenty of times bring something to the table and i'm told no that's not what we're trying to accomplish here uh especially when i'm working on magic shows um and uh practice and philosophy and philosophical thought are two very different things right a lot of the times what you're bringing to the table conceptually someone may say no that's not the Point, but you say, well, maybe you don't see this theatrical touch as being in the mindset of what you're trying to establish or the truth or the honesty at the moment. But maybe at the end of the day, we're accomplishing what we need to accomplish. Um, and I feel like I educate magicians who are not uh, aware of the tools that are at their disposal through lighting as much as I learn from magicians and other theater artists uh, as well. I don't think that answered the question, but... Um, Lighting is a tool. It can help. Um, it can help hide. It can help highlight. Uh, it can help focus. Um, but it's only as useful uh, as it can be in the context of performance. 
I don't yeah. know if that means much. It's not the point. It's the absolutely. It's one of the stilts. It's one of the stilts. But at the same time, you know, it is a constant reminder of reminding people how important it can be, yeah. right? Um, whether again, it is a tool. Sometimes I do have to remind magicians that maybe in this context, it's not a tool to the effect, but it is a tool to the emotional uh, connection. That, what you're trying to present to the audience. Yeah. Maybe not the effect, but the end. Absolutely, uh, the end result. Right. It's not, you know, I, what I can bring to the table sometimes is technical and sometimes it's emotional. Yeah. He's stumped. Oh no, I'm just thinking. And it's fine because there's a, um, but it, you know, it's, but I feel really fortunate to be in the room with, um, so many different creative talents uh, and so many different levels. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, so most recently you worked on Derek Delgado's show and that you were directed by Frank Oz. Yeah. Well, actually most recently, uh, I had an opportunity to work um, in conjunction or in assistance to Jules Fisher, who is a great friend and great mentor, um, so number 54, on a, 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 an evening or multiple evenings that Ricky Jay did in New York, um, which was quite an honor. I've had the privilege to work with Jules and with Ricky on several other occasions and contexts, but uh, in many ways this was... Uh, you got to work with the better Ricky. It was it was it was a thrilling experience uh, to get to work with Jules and Ricky in the same room, and Michael and all of the other people there, and be a part of that. Yeah, it was thrilling, uh, and you know, less creative than other things I've done, um, but humbling to no to no end. Sure. What What are some that are practical for people? Practical, not necessarily. Um, that no matter the level of uh, experience and sophistication of everyone in the room that you know we were doing a two or three night run three night run here in New York uh, and everyone in the room you know were pros well beyond myself uh, truly award-winning pros but sometimes when you do something in a very um, short fashion uh, there's a very kind of you know, pull it together kind of atmosphere, and you know, how you work in that. Kind of a realism. Yeah, there's there. a absolute realism. Then where everyone in the room, from Jules to Ricky, they're all, you know, they're all um, accustomed to much more time, much more money, much more, much more labor. Yeah. And but there's something fun in that. Like, let's put on a show. Like, you know, we all just kind of just do it. <laughs> I'm just and imagining somebody in the corner being like, giddy up! The, you know? It was kind of what that was. Yeah? Uh, and I was so humbled to be a part of that team. It's phenomenal. Uh, yeah. Um, but no, the most the thing that I've worked on most recently in a uh, more time-consuming and uh, all-encompassing way was certainly Derek's show. Um, which is awesome. Which is awesome. Come uh, and see it when it's in New York. I think Maybe. Ricky just let the cat out of the bag. So. I'm just assuming. So now you let it out. I um, just want to see Derek. <laughs> so we'll see when this airs versus the announcement. and Maybe Elliot will have to edit this out, or maybe the announcement will come first. Yeah, look, this is just speculation. It's just Derek speculation. Derek's show is definitely um, coming to me. But I, no, but no, I'm excited. I had the fortune nope. to meet Derek um, <laughs> through. All right, through. stop, stop, stop. How did you meet Derek Dogai? Uh, I met Derek. That's just some other shit. <laughs> if if need be, <laughs> probably it. I'll keep it in. But go ahead. Ask that again then. So no, we'll leave this part in because they don't know now. If oh, they did take it. um, they know what we're talking it was. about, and then that makes them know what we're talking about. We don't know. <laughs> so how'd you meet Derek? 
Uh, I met Derek uh, through working on a Ricky J show, which was an interesting uh, situation for me. Yeah. I had the fortune of working as an associate lighting designer on a Ricky J show called Rogue's Gallery uh, when it was at the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. And it was a show, um, it was Ricky's third show, um, his least formal of the three shows, but in many ways the one I enjoyed the most in that it was the most personal. Mm-hmm. It was Ricky on a bar stool telling stories about what interested him most. And I really loved the show. There were a number of performance pieces, but it was mostly Ricky telling stories. And it was the most approachable. Um, I've seen all three of Ricky's shows. Uh, and it was really, truly the most approachable that I ever found Ricky to be. Nonetheless, um, the show toured uh, four or five, six cities, something like that, and one or two night stands. And the Geffen was its only formal stand. They uh, did three, four, or five weeks there. A, a fairly substantial run for what the rest of the show was. Um, and Jules Fisher, who's a phenomenal lighting designer and a, I believe the most Tony Award-winning lighting designer, uh, and a great friend and mentor and just a phenomenal person. Uh, Jules is Ricky's lighting designer. He's done all of Ricky's major shows and unfortunately was unable to do this show and asked me if I would help out as an associate and take Jules's notes and help implement. Uh, and I had the opportunity to work on that show. And at the time, uh, I've been outed since, but at the time, Ricky did not know that I was a magician. Um, and, you know, Ricky, uh, Ricky's Ricky. He's great. He's the best and a really phenomenal. There's really, I, there's nothing I can say right now that will build Ricky up to this to the point that Ricky deserves to be built up. Sure. But nonetheless, yeah. Ricky is very private and very sensitive to other magicians in the room. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Ricky, uh, it was not appropriate for it to be known that that I was a uh, an amateur, hobbyist, whatever, magician working on the show. And I truly was there simply for my uh, talents and interest as a lighting designer. Yeah. Um, and to wrap the story in a brief fashion, uh, I was working on this show, uh, executing Jules's um, thoughts, uh, and working with uh, Michael Weber and Derek uh, to help create Ricky's show. Derek was working behind the scenes. Michael was the, the lead kind of consultant uh, and artistic talent on the show. Uh, and Derek was helping to to make all of that a reality, mm-hmm. right? And to be, I guess in many ways, Derek was the 53rd assistant on that show. Uh, we were both young in our careers, and we actually didn't ever speak. I'm not sure that we ever shook hands, introduced ourselves, um, but we both worked on that show and knew that each other were on that show. Um, so after that, uh, Derek was in New York uh, working on a show with his uh, artistic partner uh, and collaborator, Glenn Kino, uh, a show called A Bandit at the Kitchen. Yeah. And it just so That's happened cool. that I lived, I do live still across the street from this great venue called The Kitchen. And this was many years after the Ricky J show when I, you know, ostensibly saluted Derek or waved or like, you know, we acknowledged that each other existed without being able to talk to each other. Sure. Um, yeah. And the show was at The Kitchen. And the show had happened in L.A. in some capacity, maybe at the Soho House, but it was written up in Magic Magazine or Genie Magazine or somehow I knew that there was this piece called A Walk Through China yeah. where they Maybe took China Chow. China? I did walk through China later on <laughs> at the kitchen. Um, but they did this piece called A Walk Through China with China Chow, who's a, she's a person. I don't know how else to describe her, but maybe a socialite or, you know. Um, they did this piece called A Walk Through China and there was a song in half and it was a piece they'd done in, in LA and it had been written up about in Magic Magazines and also I think in probably other 
periodicals. Other periodicals that, yeah. that you know were far more important than Magic Journey magazine. <laughs> um, it's an IBM. But you know, but I was aware of it, and so I saw this weird billboard for a bandit. And I don't even know that I knew that it was a bandit, but I knew the walk they're trying to part, and somehow it all came together. And I walked by the kitchen, and I'm like oh, that show's happening here with these people that I've never really met, but Derek was on that thing with Ricky, and there's some tangential relationship. Sure. And I'm here at the store one day. I don't tannins at that point. And I get a phone call saying, um, do you have a song in half that we can rent for an event in New York? And I think I must have just seen the flyer at the kitchen, I guess, within the last 24 hours. But somehow, do you have a song in half we can rent? And a bandit at the kitchen. I connected the dots. And I said, funny, I do have a song in half you can rent, but do you have a lighting designer? Oh, nice. That was a pretty aggressive move. I'm not a... That was a good parlay. I you. am not yeah. a good salesman, which yeah. is funny because I own a magic store. You were um, that shit in Ramsey. But I, I subtly said, <laughs> well, I have a song in half you can rent if you can use a lighting designer. So I ostensibly... Blackmailed. <laughs> no, I blackmailed, but I also no. lost really badly. Because not only did I not get paid as a lighting designer, but I didn't get paid for the rental of the song in half. I said, you can have the song if you bring me in, in tow as a lighting designer. Yeah. So I lost on like multiple levels there. Well, but it, it worked out in the I think I'm going to invoice them. <laughs> After this, we'll send an invoice. Derek, Glenn, invoice is coming your way. Um, <laughs> Prepare yourself. But... Compound interest. But we reconnected and, you know, You're just going to charge more for a Derek show in New York. Built a collaborative yeah, relationship. <laughs> um, but it was interesting to see those dots kind of reconnect themselves after years. Uh, and I did bring them the song and I did light the show and, and that led to further work. Yeah. yeah. And Bill Kalush buying a $300 t-shirt for the library. Oh, that was great. Um, <laughs> something like that. Really tangential. Maybe this gets cut out of this because nobody's going to care. But a part of that show was to have a real live auctioneer from I was either Christie's or Sotheby's, one of the major auction houses, yeah. come and auction off this unknown work of art, something that didn't exist. It truly didn't exist. It got created live in the show. Uh, and it was a real auctioneer. And we didn't prep this auctioneer. She had no idea what she was doing. She had to auction off something that she didn't know what it was. And she had to hype it and sell it. That's and there fucking was, awesome. Uh, I mean, that's God Glenn and it. Derek. Those guys are geniuses but there Fuck. was so there uh, <laughs> I'm so one of, mad. <laughs> I think we only did two performances but one of those performances there was a bidding war between Bill Kalush and my father um, I didn't know that and I'm not I'm not sure how oh no excuse me I mix I'm I'm mixing the story up a little bit I think Bill won it the night before but we'll make it sound like it was the two of them I'll take out this um, part I think the next night it was. I think it was the next night it was my dad bidding against. Anyway, else. it was a vicious battle um, between Bill Kalush and Adam's father. Um, but Bill Kalush won it one night. Bill Kalush won it one night, and I think it was the other night. Maybe it was Bill's night. Either way, did your dad win one? No. Okay. And I'm then not they sure against each no, other. No, but I'm not. I'm not sure how. Derek's not going to lose. Oh, I'm not sure that Derek. I don't know if he did know it was my father. Maybe it was just me right, freaking matter. out. Matter. But the point is, is that the the work of art was created live and in the moment. Yeah. And on, let's just say that it was created on the person yeah. who won the bid. Ooh, that's fun. And I I love my father, but he would not have taken kindly to being yeah. made into a made car, into a work of art at his expense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and thankfully, either Bill or this other man who. Uh, 
It was, was in the Bill fashion Kalish. world. <laughs> I remember the other end, picture him. Yeah. But one of the two outbid my father. And I actually, maybe I don't remember the story that well, but I'd like to think that Derek knew it was my father and was like, holy fuck, what if Adam's dad wins? But maybe it was just me sweating it out in the corner, like, what the fuck is going to happen? <laughs> Um, because it was also it was one of those great pieces of theater or yeah. magic it was both magic and theater one of those great things that you cannot rehearse right the audience is part of that moment yes and how, you know that's kind of wonderful about magic and theater is creating something that doesn't exist until the audience comes into it and I think that's part of what I mentioned a while back about loving live entertainment over architecture or something and that what we create doesn't exist until the audience witnesses it yeah and it's a it's a moment of witness uh, and in this moment, you can't rehearse this because either the audience member is like, yes, I am into it. I am involved. I am part of the show. Or they say, no fucking way. You can't spray paint my however expensive dress shirt I'm wearing. Yeah. Uh, and I was just really fucking glad that my dad didn't win because he would not have been witness to theater in a productive way. But how can you ever know? Like, what if they did get a guy one day who said no? Um, so that was... Spray paint him. Uh, you know, that was my first uh, chance to work with Derek and Glenn, and I relished that moment because that show was such a... Uh, they were all putting themselves out there and putting all of us out there and really uh, creating a work of art that really, truly did not exist without the witness of the audience. Yeah. It's what magic is supposed to be. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I say that, and we agree, but that depends on what your definition of magic well, is. Look, I mean, so much magic these well, that's days. One, certainly part of it. Yeah, of course. Who cares? I'm a real. <laughs> but I mean, like, if you're not a performer, I, you love the history. Of I have real stuff. issue with magic that can exist, and you know, this is a debatable point. But I have real issue with magic that can exist without a live audience. Magic can be done for a camera without. I, I don't have a problem with magic that's done with a spectator for the camera. But anything that can be done to a camera without someone actually responding to it, to me, is a yeah. demonstration of skill and not a demonstration of math. Um, and well, people I, are... I can get flack for that. Like, I'm not saying I'm right. I don't uh, disagree but... with you, and I sell magic for a living. But but the thing is, is like it's then how you apply that demonstration of skill in a live... So, like, Ricky doing the diagonal palm shift on artofmagic.com. Pick it up yeah. now. <laughs> well, no one needs that because there's no magic in it. You know, like... It's the production. It in of itself is not magic, but you then take what you see. The magic, the magic is ethereal. You know, you're not selling the method to a magic trick. Yeah. You're selling the method to a thing that you do. That well, but we call we call I think technique that visual magic. Thing, visual things are huge now because uh, no one can pay attention long enough for someone to set up the scene. Like, look, my hands are empty. My jacket's empty. No one's going to watch that video. Even if it's a fucking miracle, like, your whole body turns to gold. You know, or something like that. Like, no one will care, you know, because no one wants to sit and watch that video. Everything's like, snap changes, you know, like, boom, boom, boom. bad magic, no cleanup, no, like, showing that anything's real at all. You know, mm -hmm. you could be holding a 50-card lift in front of the camera and just snapping those cards off. That shit would go viral. <laughs> you know, or something. I don't know. I don't know where it's going with But it's about creating an emotional reaction. Yeah. Um, fooling someone is not the same as creating a mood. I agree. And I like to think that magic has the ability to create 
an emotional reaction. That doesn't yeah. that I'm not saying that an emotional reaction is um, is everything. Uh, a fooling moment can be just yeah. as magical as an emotional reaction. Being astonished, astonishment is an emotion. So Absolutely. I would say magic is only creating an somebody not knowing how you did something, but not emotionally. Who fucking cares? You know. Well, but like. You don't want to go down that road because then I'm going to look at you and say there's lots of things that you know are sold and taught, yeah, that are fooling, yeah, and fooling is great, but that's not the same. I agree. No, I'm a hundred percent with you. Art we are fooling? on the same page. Yeah, it's not that's like the new website. The Art thing is, <laughs> um, the well, the thing is, is like when you you sell something that is fooling. That's the base point. Yes, absolutely. You can take anything that is fooling and create an emotional reaction out of it. Um, but can you create that reaction? That's and, and that's not that that's is not my <laughs> that is not my uh, ability yeah. in life. I cannot create that reaction. I can help that reaction. Um, I can and I can help that in many ways. I can help that by being a um, you can punctuate again a custodian of magic, and yeah. I can help uh, educate and teach and point people towards the right resources to create the astonishment and hopefully also create the magical moment mm-hmm. and I can do that by owning tannins uh, and educating Sure. and then I can also as a theatrical lighting designer uh, and I even beyond the lighting but as a someone who is I would like to say well versed in theatrical production I can also work with magicians and say how can we take that thing that is um, fooling and create and elicit a reaction out of it yeah uh, Do you ever just flash people in the eyes from no, behind to cover a move? I uh, well, frankly, yes. I had, to, <laughs> I had to do a show recently where that was a thing, and you don't know, look at hurt. I did. I did work on a show where the successful with reaction, where the successful react, where the successful result was, why don't we just blind them? But I thought that was a cop out. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was a little bit like. It was a little bit like being a magician. It's a little bit like turning the lights out when you do sort a of sleight of hand move. Yeah. It's exactly the same, right? Uh, and yeah. I, I felt I guilty. It worked. Is. It was successful. It was fooling. Yeah. It was fooling. But was it? Uh, did we elicit a magical reaction? I yeah. Don't know. And so often, and look, I was guilty of it as a in a non-magic context. We were aiding magic, but I was not acting in a magic context. I was act, acting in a theatrical lighting design context. But I felt guilty, um, and I. I, I frankly wish that magicians felt less guilty or felt more, more guilty. guilty yeah. um, and and that's a fine line. I, I think that we don't often look at fooling versus magical. Yes. I don't know why this is the And I'm speaking personally. Sure. I'm not talking about magic in general. But I don't know why personally this is the case where I have friends who are magicians that are fucking enthralled by not knowing how... Mm. But when I see the exact same thing, we're sitting next to each other, I'm like, oh my god, I have no idea how that worked. And I'm like, I don't fucking care. Who cares? It wasn't good. It's the challenge aspect. It means nothing to me. Um, yeah. And I think the challenge aspect has been a part of magic as long as magic has been a thing. Yeah. Um, I think Houdini presented the challenge act, right? Um, you know, so much of... But there was it, still a context for that, you know? Sure. But it was simply... I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm agreeing yeah. with you. Um, but the context was was a challenge. Yeah. It was, can you present me with an object that I cannot escape? But the context is the challenge. And that's fooling. Yes, it is. But is it magical? When you sit in a, a you know, an enclosed curtain closed off thing for an hour and a half, and you've already escaped 45 minutes ago. Sure. I think that's definitely magical. Really? Because you're like building that thing up in their mind, and then it's like, there's, 
It's literally okay. what magic is. is sure, no, I, I think I think there's something to be said there. You're acknowledging that Houdini knew something. He knew that if he could get out of it that easily, yeah. that it was more beneficial to sit behind that curtain for the extra hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows what he did, whether but it's he did also Sudoku or crossword theater. puzzles. Exactly, right? He's just um, like... <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> thankfully, the audience can't see that. Exactly. But who knows what you do to entertain yourself for that hour. Yeah. But yes, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what I, I'm saying is that's the context If, if you're it. holding out, you know, like you palm the card and while they're shuffling, you know, are you, are you like wasting the audience time because you could produce the card at any time? You know, instead you wait for them to shuffle and... Do whatever yeah. you're going to do afterwards. But the context of it is the challenge. If your context is magic, and then you do a challenge, you're not doing... Yeah. You're doing a, a puzzle. Look, well, like, magic the, the is... Cha- the challenge happens all the time. Like, it can be, you know, like, look, you're going to put a coin in either hand, and I'm going to find it. You yeah. know, or something like that, by your tells or something. There's some kind of challenge there, yeah. and that's... That's the magic. That's the psychology. That's the the context of that is psychology. uh, The other thing is like it should be impossible for this card to appear in the box. It could be impossible for me to escape from this box. You know, or something. You're still doing the ultimate challenge in magic is understanding your audience, Um, and I think that's nothing that we can ever educate. Uh, It is the ability to read your audience, and everything we've just talked about only applies to the the correct audience. And it's always going to come down to what you need to deliver and how you need to present an effect to resonate with that audience. And some audience members simply need to be fooled. Others need to be given a magical experience. Um, And I think the simple, the the single most important thing that we can learn as a magician and the absolute hardest thing we can learn as a magician is how to read our audiences, right? Yeah. Um, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. But magicians are often to magicians are often too um, invested in their own technique and their own performance to acknowledge the audience in front of them. Um, And all we can hope to do is give every audience a unique experience. But to do that, we have to read and engage with the audience in front of us. I agree with that. Rarely do we even read and uh, let alone engage. You know, like, it's very rare for a magician to even really know his audience. Yeah. And then e- e- even if they yell, like, something at him, you know, like, it's rare for them to respond. You well, know, like, and engage. It's like, that doesn't fit with my pattern. You to know? kind of circle this back, as Ricky just said, within, you know, working with your pattern, to circle this back to what it means to own a magic store, what it means to own a magic camp, is to teach what it means to engage with your audience yeah. and to teach that learning magic and studying magic and performing magic is not a solo experience. Um, and that too often we read a magic book and we learn the technique and we um, regurgitate that technique and mm-hmm. we regurgitate that performance yes. and we perform magic for ourselves. And even if there's an audience standing in front of us, um, the magic is performed to the expectation that we've set out for ourselves or what we've interpreted from reading something. And it's not performed for the person standing in front of you, yeah. and it's not acknowledging the person standing in front of you in the way that they're responding to something. Yeah. You're doing a play with the fourth wall that was broken before yeah. you started, and you didn't even know. <laughs> I mean, that's been the best, that's a great theatrical reference, and all night I think we've been discussing the, the relationship between theatricality and mm-hmm. um, And 
Uh, absolutely. Too many magicians perform with a, with a fourth wall. They yeah. perform uh, for an invisible audience, even if there's someone standing in front of them. Uh, and the thing that I hope t- that I can bring to the magic community is an awareness. Um, by, I do think, and I haven't figured out how to do it yet, but I do think that my goal in life is to somehow bring fuse my theatrical sensibilities with my passion for presenting young magicians with, Mm -hmm. or not young, old magicians, anybody who wants to learn with the access to the material. I'm not the person to do the education. I'm not the best person to teach you how to do a move. But I like to think that I can present you with the opportunities to approach the bookshelf at Tannins, to approach the magicians behind the counter. But how do we take what I've learned through my uh, experiences in theater and what I've learned through Mm -hmm. my experiences growing up in a magic shop and teach magicians to be aware of their surroundings? And I think the biggest flaw in most contemporary magic is a lack of awareness of our surroundings. Um, And I love the accessibility to education that the internet provides. Uh, And I love the community that the internet can provide. You can speak to people that are so far away from where you are and in such a different world than you're in, whether it's geographically or socioeconomically. But it can be insular, and you start to focus on... It can be tremendously insular. Communicating just with magicians. Yeah, absolutely, because perform. when you're... Even if you're Skyping one-on-one or YouTube or whatever, anything, even if you're performing for a person, you don't have that face in front of you, and you don't have that emotional reaction in front of you. Yeah. And there's always going to be that barrier that potentially presents, uh, or allow not presents, but allows for you to kind of build that fourth wall on, right? So much magic, that's a theatrical term, the fourth wall, but so much magic should be breaking that down. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the tremendous opportunities propo- uh, allowed uh, by the internet also allow us to uh, ignore the fourth wall that the internet creates. Yeah. Um, and so how can we take the uh, tremendous ability the internet allows to collaborate, um, to reach a broader audience, to disseminate information that would not be as available and Art of Magic does a phenomenal job of putting information out there but how do we um, how do we protect the personal interaction and personal relationships that magic should create how do we protect that when the ability to educate in um, through the internet also uh, negates the need personal, to go out and, the need yeah. to go out and yeah. have a personal interaction so I, I mean, I, I think, I think something that we're trying to do that you do is we encourage people. That's sure. what this whole podcast is: getting people to think about what magic is for themselves, how they can. So you talked about you're not a pro- sure. This is what you know, Tony. I talked to Tony last night. He has a diff- these different ideas of what magic is for themselves, and that's great because people listening can go, oh, that really resonates with me. Maybe I'm not a performer, mm-hmm. right? But that means maybe I shouldn't perform as much, and that's great because then it goes back to what you were saying earlier about uh, not being the person to be sure. Perform. But I, you know, it's but it's the idea that we do promote going out and getting the flight time, Absolutely. doing this stuff, just so that you can get a feeling of like what it is that you have dominion over. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I, you know, and I don't want it to sound as if. There's something wrong with anybody who's listening to this podcast or anyone who's a student of magic performing. No, of course not. Um, like I yeah. think that I think that is very important for anybody who knows anything about magic to go out there and spread spread magic. Spread um, what they love. Absolutely. 
And you know, when I say that I'm not the right person to perform, it means that I'm not the right person to perform when I'm hanging out with other magicians. When I'm in a room when there's someone better uh, equipped than I am sure. to share magic. Sure. But there is nothing more powerful than sharing magic. And if you are well-versed and well-practiced and you have spent your time studying magic, regardless of how you view yourself as an entertainer, if you've studied it and you've practiced it, then it's a totally appropriate for you to go out there and spread magic yeah. and perform magic. And I think that's very important that I, I really don't want to come across as having said anything against sharing or spreading magic. And that's why, that's why I own Tannins and that's why I spend every day here because I think it's very important for anybody who possibly can to share a magical experience. Yeah. Um, and it's just situational. Um, but I think as long as you practice and as long as you feel like you were doing a positive service to magic, um, then I think you should absolutely be out there and performing magic and sharing magic. I completely um, That's, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, you have to encourage a self awareness. It's yeah. not even about magic anymore. Like, who are you? you know, really think about who you are, what you can add to somebody yeah. else's life. Because magic yeah. is about sharing. It's one that doesn't exist. I know you person. can't expect it to be perfect. You know, like, so you do have to get out there and do it. I think one of the most interesting things about magic, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to acknowledge this, but magic typically um, attracts people who are not great at sharing, who are a little bit introverted, who have idiosyncrasies. Um, But magic is about sharing. (laughs) And everybody here laughs because we're all one of those people. And you know what? I I don't love that stereotype, but it's true. It is true. Um, (laughs) God damn it. But it, so much about magic is sharing, mm-hmm. and so much of so much about magic is sharing. But the people who are attracted to magic are not necessarily that individual. Um, and I, I think that it uh, opens a bigger conversation. But at the same time, um, it also says something about how important it is to go out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. and how the only way to positively affect anybody in any kind of uh, atmosphere or any kind of way. The only way you can possibly affect a situation is to go out of your your comfort zone. Yeah. Whether it's performance, whether it is politically, yeah. I, in any anything in the in this world, you can't positively affect something if you don't go beyond your own comfort zone. Um, and I think magic, in its own way, and as a very small art, uh, is maybe the it's the is maybe the best you know example of how we can possibly positively affect change in this world yes i would say it's one of the best and also one of the quote-unquote easiest ways to express yourself to be authentic to be you know that vulnerable getting out of your comfort zone way because you also are doing this miracle absolutely um and you know look i hope it sounds crazy but magic truly does have the ability to affect positive social change. Yeah. Um, and one should not feel limited to doing magic in that, you know, I, I don't want to say that someone should only do magic if they can affect positive social change, but I do think that magicians should acknowledge the ability to do so. Um, look, magic is fun, and it can be trivial, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it is a really powerful tool that most people don't have at their disposal. Yeah. And I think more magicians and more students of magic should look at what they have at their disposal and think about how they can use that to affect um, changes in intellectual thought. Yeah. And that sounds so heady. Uh, and it's, you know, I, I mean it to, to Yeah, there's heady. nothing wrong with that. There's nothing it's wrong with that. And, 
and there is nothing wrong with a more fun approach to it. Yeah. But too often, people trivialize magic as a fun art. I'm sorry. No, the clean hand. <laughs> right. And, you know, it can exist on both those levels. There's yeah. absolutely nothing yeah. wrong with either side of it. Of course not. But let's look at what we have at our disposal and think about how we can do something positive yeah. with it. Yeah. Max Maven always says, like, in the when he's discussing Di Vernon, he's like, Di Vernon was upset, you know, like, magicians had taken a art that was uh, inherently profound and rendered it trivial and uh we really do have that power under our feet you know like it's still there you know even though most of the time we step on it or something like that like to really truly affect someone and change their whole day maybe their whole year and maybe their life outlook you know just by simple miracle yeah we simply don't acknowledge the power that as Ricky says a miracle or a, a you know a positive reaction can uh, a positive reaction can elicit so much more than a simple smile it can absolutely change an outlook um, and too many magicians dismiss the ability to do that and trivialize magic and I, I don't I think I think I'm I'm with you on this and in what I'm about to say is that we don't necessarily mean you have to make a card trick about Donald Trump and nope. change minds what we mean is you can be the stranger that yeah. impacts a person's day positively yeah. that then changes the way they think about interacting with people it's on a not, whole different level. It's not in the pattern. It's not in the presentation. Yeah. It's in, it's in the space that you provide for them to respond. You don't have to create social change through your presentation. Yeah. You have to step back from what you perform and how you do it and allow someone to respond and allow someone to to relate to it in the way that they choose to relate to it. Yeah. Um, and again, someone will relate to it simply as a trick or someone will relate to it in a profound, I view this situation differently than I did yeah. 30 seconds ago. And it's the ability to allow someone to view a situation differently that allows... Giving them that space. That, yeah. Space yeah. is important. Um, and when did you start to believe that about? I don't know. Um, 1930. Yeah, that's a, like a that's a fifty four be years a, before I, I was born. I, yeah, I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't mean that is like, a really hard question, especially like, because I truly don't. You know, you don't know. It's, I, it, don't know. It I think that's something that. that I've learned from other people. Yeah, that's not a realization I had. Yeah, it's an observation that I had by spending time with people that truly understood this. Yeah. Um, and again, do you think we're all on like a path where we're getting there? That's I hope so. That's the point. But I also hope that, again, magic can be anything that it needs to be for any individual. Yeah. And that sounds silly, but I hope that Tannins and myself and any other influence in magic can be that for any individual. But I also hope that we step back enough to allow it to be what it needs to be for any person. Yeah. Like, I want to, in- yeah. I want to influence that. And someone's going to have better ideas than what we're having. A hundred percent. But also if someone wants to say, I'm just having a fucking good time. Yeah. Let them have that great time. Absolutely. Why do we need to step on that? Mm -hmm. And that's that, you know, that's the thing about camp is like, how do we step back and say, we've got 160 kids here Mm -hmm. and some of them hopped up on sugar because there's a great canteen run by Tim. (laughs) But how do we allow them to take magic to be whatever they want it to be. Some of them want it to be this life-altering experience. Yeah. You know, look at someone like Derek who says, I can take my abilities and my storytelling, my 
technical skills, my storytelling abilities, and I can mash those into one thing. Why do we have to separate the two, right? Why does storytelling and emotional versus and technical, why does that have to be different? We can make that one thing and we can affect people. But there is, there is also something so valid about the person that says, I just want to elicit a good a smile yeah. out of somebody. And how do we uh, train the next generation of magicians to appreciate both sides of that and also not just appreciate it, but be able to find their place in that spectrum? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it really sounds so silly because we're talking about we're sitting here in a magic store that sells things. We sell objects. We sell knowledge and books. We sell DVDs. But we're selling stuff. We're not selling uh, insight. You know, yeah. there is insight to be gleaned from all of this, but we're selling stuff. We're selling information, and the that ability to understand the situation in which you perform and utilize the stuff that we sell is something we can never teach. And I can never help a hope to impart that through Magic Camp, through owning a retail. There is an awareness that cannot be taught, um, and I hope that the experience of performing magic and presenting magic that that we can teach uh, allows people to you know open their minds to what a kind of positive effect they can create that's a very 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 lofty goal that i can never hope to take any credit for Um, but i do hope that we can create a path towards which people can learn a unique and specific skill set that can be utilized through such a range of uh, performance and engagement opportunities that some of those people will utilize it for. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm cringing as I say that because holy shit, can we live up to that? Of course we can. Yeah, drop that hammer. And of course some of us won't. Unleash the fury. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong if you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, but, but let's acknowledge that magic can be that if we want it to be that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. But if you want it to be that, it can be that. I think we should all... Yeah. Even if we know we, that's not our place. But have fun. It is a fun and engaging and interactive art. Yeah. And truly, the interaction is all we can ever hope for. I think it's, you know, I think it's important that even if you even if you know I'm not a performer, I'm not a person that wants to do this or that or the other thing, we're still all in it together. Sure. We all have to work together to, to do something. And if that something is pushing magic forward, then that's a lofty goal yeah. and something. And, you know, look, I think that this podcast is an ability to bring people together and to, it's sort of, I touched on earlier that it's hard when people are in remote locations. Um, it's both hard and positive. It's great that people uh, through the true technology and through the internet have the ability to communicate with each other. Um, but it's also hard and that it allows us to feel like we're part of a community without ever having experienced that community. Um, and I think that we all have to learn to embrace the community and then learn how to interact with different things. And it, it seems to me that this podcast is probably a great first step uh, into allowing people to connect and hopefully engage with that. I'm not afraid of this. I don't know. We're just, a, we're just a couple of Phyllis Tolls. I'm here. not afraid of the lack of whiskey. <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> just um, for the listeners... The three of us drink a bottle of whiskey. Uh, Widow Jane from Brooklyn. Thank you, Adam. You're welcome. We're all sitting here in New York. Ricky and I, or I guess Ricky's 
way beyond being called a New Yorker at this point. He's very much a New Yorker. Yeah, um, it took me eight years. <laughs> but we welcome Elliot to our ranks for the week. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm um, proud to be here. And I was told by Ricky, who invited himself to this, or it <laughs> alluded welcome. to the fact that I should invite him to this, <laughs> um, that part of sitting down for an interview with Elliot was uh, providing libations for the evening. Well, just Elliot had some uh, great... <laughs> Great affectations. One of them's oh. style. The other one's uh, known by whiskey and coffee. And uh, so, applied a, a few of those well, things. This sounds, <laughs> this, this sounds like a plug for Widow Jane, who is a, a New York um, distillery, yeah, who hopefully don't. will now um, sponsor, sponsor my apartment. <laughs> um, but Widow Jane is a fantastic bourbon. Um, I, but you know what? This is going to make me go off on a little bit of a tangent and say Let's that. Do it. So, uh, Ricky just left, so we paused for a little bit, and now we're back. Adam has something he wants to bring. No, I, I was I was bringing up with uh, Elliot and Ricky before we paused to say goodbye to Ricky, because we were mentioning how our evening progressed. Um, that while magic appeals to a, a broad demographic, and so many magicians are uh, such you know, differing age groups, young audience, an older audience who's uh, been fans of magic or practicing, mm-hmm. that I think that a lot of the new and uh, so exciting magic companies uh, so many people that have strong digital press uh, and therefore um, constant uh, images to the audience um, so many of the those companies are uh, patronized by a young demographic and I don't love that the marketing that is used is often um, focuses on liquor or sometimes violence. Or it's just more adult-themed. More adult-themed. Yeah. And I, I don't want to make it political, but yes. And I think uh, that it's important in magic to understand who uh, is viewing our content. Sure. Um, and that in magic, um, with Tannins or with any of these other brands, we're appealing to the largest demographic that we possibly But I think we have to be aware of who our audience is. And, and that was really it. And I, uh, you know, it... It stems even beyond the marketing material, but often sometimes to the graphic work of even what we sell. There was a great trick that we used to sell years ago. We still sell, actually, but we put a lot of emphasis on. It wasn't ours. It came from a company in the UK. But the marketing material was an image of a gun. Yeah. And it was a great trick. Mm-hmm. And I have no way, you know, we won't get into my political feeling about gun ownership and all that, but like... Sure. But there, there were a lot of. It was a great trick to sell to young and to a young audience because it was easy to do. It was yeah. a really strong, strong magical effect. But it was easy to do, and too often we had parents who said, oh, "Great for my kid," because the packaging was a, a target and a bullseye and a gun. Yeah. And again, regardless of your feelings about guns, like that had absolutely nothing to do with the magic effect. This was not the trick where here's an imaginary gun, think of how many bullets you have and shoot a hole through the card. Like, that's a magic trick. This was not that trick. Yeah. This trick had nothing to do with guns. Yeah. But it was packaged and sold that way. Yeah. And we lost a lot of sales on this trick that I thought was such a great trick that so many kids should own because it was so strong uh, performance-wise and Mm method-wise because it was packaged with a gun picture. And I think that a, a lot of times in magic, we don't realize that or not realize I'm gonna no even worse than that I think we pick themes to try and pitch magic to make it cooler or whatever but like to take it out of we're just we're ignoring what the actual trick is and trying to sell it in a you're trivializing the effect and trying yeah, to make it sexy exactly um, and let's make magic sexy but let's make it magic let's make magic sexy for what it is and not yeah. by trying to associate it with a, um, and, uh, you know 
it's hard. How do you sell magic? Because so much of magic is a emotional reaction. We talked about that. We talked about creating a reaction. Um, and I've often said that, like, I wish that when you walked into Tannen that you saw no packaging of an effect, no commercial packaging, objects that elicited a reaction. Um, and what if you were to buy a, you know, you were selling invisible thread and you actually saw some voting? And that's the most literal example. Uh, but what if you were selling a color-changing deck and wouldn't it be better to illustrate some kind of magical moment and what that is and you know i don't have the answer to that and it's challenging because i've talked about this for so many years but how can we sell emotion magic is about presenting emotion and feeling and reaction yeah and so much of what we sell in magic is graphically you know there's a well that's because you have to create the emotion without the magical effect because magic isn't real if this was harry potter you could come in and you could see the effect had nobody would have to you could go i want to go do that and we talk about that a lot here um uh internally in the store when we're trying to talk about how to present a magical um and we're developing a new website at the moment and some we've talked about is or that i've presented and asked for feedback from some of the guys here um how do you cap how do you um how do you take a magic and encapsulate that in literally in a moment? How do you capture a moment of magic? And so much of magic is not a moment. It is a fluid uh, activity or action. It's something that happens throughout time and, and a progression from one moment to the next that is the magic, right? Um, and I don't think that it's necessarily successful to present a video of a lot of the magic effects, right? So many of the magic effects that we sell are so highly edited and they don't present a real view of what you're buying. Uh, and they're misleading. And they're misleading because they're ultimately trying to capture a moment. It necessarily can't be represented on film properly, right? Yeah. Um, so I personally counter that, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I yeah. personally counter that. What we try to do uh, is show you a facsimile of what it looks like, and we give you all of the ownership to decide if you can make that work for yourself. You get to basically concoct your own experience, basically. Instead of trying to emotionally manipulate sure. you by means of a flashy trailer with guns right. and, and alcohol and tattoos, you know, no, we do create a cohesive experience. And I think you do that successfully. The and artist. I, and one of the things that I love about, about art of magic is that for the most part you're selling tech, the ability to learn and to create that experience. You're not selling a lot of gadgetry. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with gadgetry. A lot of gadget can create a really magical experience. Incredibly but powerful. you're you're mostly selling uh, technical know-how. Uh, and I think that's very important in magic and the most important. Um, so you're in everything you just said is totally true and I think you guys do that very very much at, at. um but us as tannins and as as someone who sells both knowledge but also toys and you know and toys that can be used to a very positive end. Yeah. How do you best represent that? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I do think that it can be best represented in a sort of less explanatory way. And shouldn't we be selling, and maybe you can consider this misleading because you wouldn't be showing the whole thing, but why? I'd love to sell a magical moment or experience. Like, instead of saying on a website, would you like to look for card tricks or rope tricks or coin tricks or this or that? Like, shouldn't we talk about vampirances and transformation, levitations, and all of the things that we can turn magic into? And do the tools of the trade really matter, or does the effect? And yeah. I'm gonna. It depends on what you're talking. About. I'm gonna bring this back to experiences that I've had working uh, outside of the magic context and yeah. talking about working on a show called Nothing to Hide, uh, and working from a purely theatrical, being outside of the magic side of that. But that was a show that I really loved because cards were a tool. That was an entirely a card show. 
yeah, everything there was a card. But there were very few effects that I in that show that I could not imagine being done with other objects. And the cards were used because they were um, a familiar object, but they were also uh, they were comfortable comfortable to the performers and technicians. And they were honest. For Helder and Derek to hold cards in their hands was an honest way to perform. They and that's were, the answer to the question that you right. asked, which is why do we do Manager's Transposition? Yeah. So that people can go, what am I comfortable with? That's the... But I think that show could have been done for a different performer. And I don't think a different performer could have created that show. That was sure. so uniquely yeah. them. But all of those effects could have been done with a different object. Yes. So sometimes I wonder if we should be pitching magic moments and less of and less magic effects. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I haven't figured out how to verbalize that yet. And, yeah. you know, this podcast is probably the first time that I ever said that to the world. Yeah. Um, but if a show like Nothing to Hide could, in my opinion, that's correct, be done with any object, then all of those tricks were not card tricks. Yeah. Those were magic moments and magic effects. They were transpositions. They were vanishes. They yeah. were appearances. Well, that's, yeah, that's just the difference of cards being used as objects right. and cards being used as personality. Um, so sometimes I wonder how we can best uh, utilize the skill sets and the things that we learn as magicians um, through different tools. Um, and, and tangentially, this goes back to the question about marketing, but it also goes back to the question of marketing um, using things that are external to the magic experience. But also, again, within selling a magic trick, like are we selling a card trick versus a coin trick? Or are we selling that magic experience? And maybe we'd be better served if we could sell a magic experience and not a magic effect. Okay. How do you do that? I don't know. It's a problem I'd like to solve. And yeah. maybe you guys can work on it as well. Um, the closest I've ever seen to that is not magic related. And it was a place that I went to uh, with Derek and his wife Vanessa. But it was um, uh, a place in Brooklyn called the Superhero Supply Shop. Um, and it is run by a nonprofit. Um, the name is eluding me at the moment, um, but the purpose of that nonprofit is tutoring. It's education, um, and the superhero supply shop exists on two levels. It exists to be an entertaining and fun front for the students who, the underprivileged students who are going to uh, attend the tutoring sessions, because. To say you're going to an after-school program and work on your homework is not nearly as engaging. To say you're going to go through the superhero supply shop and through the secret back door, and yeah, then, you know, whatever. Um, but it's also a fun way to get people to engage with the and go and shop and buy tchotchkes. Like the stuff they sell there isn't doesn't isn't real. It doesn't exist. It's yeah. it's um, objects that have no importance other than the interest that they uh, create through the magical atmosphere of the store and the fact that you realize you're supporting a, uh, a non-profit and something beneficial sure so i bought a uh, a can of uh, illusion it's a it's probably three or five it's probably a five gallon can of nothing it's an empty can the big sticker that says can of illusion and it gives a hyperbolic description of what this what is in this yeah ostensibly paint can um and it creates a, a perception and an illusion of magic. And that's so much more valuable than selling a trick. Um, and how do we... It's like the mystery box. It's, it's the mystery box, which we haven't talked about, actually. Um, I guess we're going there now. Um, but yeah, how do you create mystery? And so the, the mystery box... Well, we'll get to the mystery box in a second. I want you to finish up what you were saying about marketing. How do we, 
Yeah, marketing. Like, so what I'm asking is, can we market magic more about the effect than the presentation? And in one respect, that can be perceived as misleading. But in another respect, shouldn't we care so much more about the effect and the response than the actual presentation of it? Um, and isn't magic better served by focusing on the perception and the response than what we're actually doing to elicit that? Yes, you are right about all of that. The but how problem do you sell is that? you can't, in, in my mind, you can't teach someone how to make that response. Absolutely not. I agree with you. Yeah, every situation is different. Every person performing a magic, you know, yeah. you can't, there is no solution. I have no answers. I'm only asking questions. I know, and I'm with you, and I'm, I'm here in this with you. Uh, and, and I think it's a great question. And that's what we're doing now is the solution. It is you take the question and you find your own answer. You find the thing that gets you the closest to what it was. Yeah. But as far as magic producers and magic retailers, how do we emphasize that kind of thinking? For us, it's circles and, right. and what we do in the explanation. You know, we talk about this kind of stuff during sometimes more than others. And we do, and I, you know, we, we were talking about the liquor. We use it as a tool to, you know, it, there, there's an inherent sophistication, good design, stuff that is more adult. You know, we're not lewd or crude. No, not at all. Or pornographic in any but we do cater to an older crowd. And I think you would be surprised by the number of consumers. Sure. Because um, it's well over. We, we, get, we get the, you know, there's the cardistry folks that are you know, super fun. But like, the majority of people that I interact with and I see continually buy well over the age. Um, which is just interesting. But I also concede, you know, it's like, I agree that Nothing should be unnecessarily evocative. But my so the the first thing I ever published was, a, and in it I said, you know, come in, sit down, let me pour you a glass of whiskey. The trick that was in the trailer. So for children learning that, it's not that's not right for them. But that's not you know. First of all, a child could not do my version. Not that it's technically difficult. It is very easy to do. But it's like there's a, a presence you have to have. There's a control of the audience you have kind of thing. It's like it's and it's who I am. It's authentic to me. This kind of thing. And so it's more about creating a cohesive experience for that thing. Sure. But I am 100% with you when that doesn't fit and it's unnecessary. It's ridiculous. You have to you have to be authentic to yourself, but you also be aware of your audience. And I I, I yeah. think that we're in, um, and I think that again, I think where we're both going with this is that the. Um, it's more important to evoke an emotion and an experience than it is to evoke a, an atmosphere. I mean, those are very similar things. I don't know if I've differentiated the two enough, but we've, we've started to transition this, confirmation, this conversation into evoking response uh, and engagement as opposed to simply the, the perceptions that are created through the initial comments or images of performance. Yeah. Um, so I do want to transition it a bit to what you just raised a second ago when, when you brought up the mystery box or something yeah. like that. Um, and the mystery box, for anyone who doesn't know, is a, is a product that Tannin's Magic has sold forever, the Tannin's Magic Mystery Box, which is simply a box of, well, mystery, right? Yeah. You don't know what's in it. Mm -hmm. um, as the early catalog descriptions say it's a box of our favorite tricks it's a box of things that we have a lot of it is a box of samples that 
are brand new to the magic industry that we've decided to place in this box. So you really, it's, it's a mystery. Um, they're sold for $25 and it's $50 worth of material. Um, but the best part of all of this is the place that it's uh, kind of created in pop culture. J.J. Uh, Abrams purchased a mystery box many, many years ago when he was a child. He came to the store with a, with a family member, I believe it was a grandparent or grandmother or grandfather, and bought a mystery box and never, ever, ever opened Now it makes total sense for his career, and he talks about it all the time, but I, I would love to speak to a teenage J.J. Abrams and says, say, what possessed you to buy a, an object, a, you know, a product in a magic store that you knew was filled with magic secrets and have that willpower to never ever open it Mm -hmm. and now it's um it's created such a lifeblood and such a force in his creative work and he talks about it all the time in a tech talk uh and in lots of other interviews uh, in wired magazine and said look it's the source of my inspiration and and the mystery and much of his work um to say i have this object that i've never ever opened and i don't know what's in it and that mystery and that secret um influences so much of his work but how do we, as a magic buying audience, as a consumer, as a student, say we embrace that secret and we embrace that mystery? Yeah, I don't think any of us can ever live up to truly what JJ did and you know and what he believes with the mystery box. Um, but it's a really proud moment in Tannen's history to say that we took something, you know, we that we allowed someone's interpretation. I think that's the most part. Tans can't take credit for creating the mystery. We can take credit for creating the object of the mystery box, mm-hmm. but JJ imbued it with value, uh, and and that's the hope, right? As magicians, that an audience can imbue something with value. Um, and the, we still sell the mystery box to this day. Uh, it looks very much like it did then. We we hand silk screen these boxes here in the store, uh, and what is in them is still a mystery to everybody, including ourselves. We. Uh, put objects in them and we shuffle all the boxes up. They're all different. And no one who works here knows what's in any one box. Um, but nonetheless, the power in that box is only in the power that someone imbues it with. Most people who buy the mystery box choose to open it. But we have a lot of customers who come in who aren't magicians who know the box because of JJ and they buy it and they put it on their shelf as an object. And again, it's imbuing something with power. And as magicians, I think we can really, I hope that we can strive to imbue the performance that we uh, deliver, or we can ho- we can strive to allow the audience to imbue that that performance that we deliver with with some kind of emotional power or connect. Yeah, what a cool legacy. Boy, I mean that's super lofty. Like again, we talked about this, I don't know, twenty minutes ago or however this all gets edited together. But at some point we <laughs> talked about lofty goals. Yeah. But like that is the goal, right? You know, the legacy of protecting tannins and protecting the mystery box is only as important as the way the audience views it. And that should be the same for any magic trick. And you don't have to have the history of tannins standing behind you to hope for that. You can be a new brand. You can be a new performer. You can be a new trick. Like You just need to hope and allow for a response. And in magic, all we can hope for is a response. And we can hope it's a positive response, right? Yeah. No one wants the negative response. But we are putting ourselves out there as performers and as artists and creators and interpreters a lot of the material that we perform as magicians is not our own. We're an interpreter of a piece of material. Yeah. And that's a totally valid place to be. It's great to interpret something. Um, but it's all only for ourselves until it's put out there into the world and uh, observed and responded to by the lay public. We've been doing two and a half. 
Isn't that crazy? Two it feels like no time has gone by. Two and a half hours? Yeah. It's a long time. And there's so much stuff on here that we didn't talk about. See, I just did the Ricky intonation. Okay. The, sorry. Uh, well, I hope you edit this down in less than two and a half hours. No, I'm, I mean, I mean, there's... Are, is there more we should talk about? A minute about? and 40 that I need to edit out. Okay. <laughs> um, I, we'll just have to do it again. Because I feel, I feel good. I feel like we came to a conclusion. There's some stuff... You know, I want to talk about cooking and marathoning and other life. shit. Yeah. There are other things I do in my life besides own a magic store and run a magic camp and yeah. design lighting for magicians. But as you point out, like that's a big part of who I am and what I am. And, yeah. uh, and cooking and running and all of that are all important parts of that. Um, but to this community, I think hopefully I've shared what I can share. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that I don't think that anything I've said is correct. Uh, it's just my opinion. Um, I hope my opinion is interesting to somebody listening. Yeah. Uh, and you take that opinion and you say, I agree or I disagree. And I think, you know, one of the most interesting things in any art form uh, is an opinion and is a review. And I love reading reviews of anything, whether it's a review of a magic trick, a piece of theater, a film. Um, but the best thing is to learn to interpret someone else's opinion. Uh, and when I read reviews of something... Uh, I, I know how I relate to that reviewer or that person's opinion. And so there might be something they love. And I say, no, I, I dis- always disagree with this person. And therefore, I don't, that's probably not something I'm going to love. But if I, you know, if my opinions are so opposite to them, when they say they hate something, maybe it's something I'm going to love. And you, you just learn to relate to an opinion mm-hmm. and, and how that informs you. Keep an open mind just in general. Absolutely keep an open mind. Um, but appreciating other people's opinions and learning how you relate to them and maybe you're directly the opposite of them but if you're directly the opposite of them you can still appreciate their opinion because you know how to relate to that opinion does that make sense yeah absolutely um so hopefully you figure out where you are in the landscape yeah, so hopefully yeah. listeners have created, learned more about themselves learn more about themselves learn more about my tastes uh learn more about how my taste might influence theirs in a positive or negative fashion yeah uh, and learn how to relate to themselves or to others simply by engaging in the dialogue that hopefully we've had over the last two and a half hours. Yeah. Again, I, I sort of cringe as I say that, and LA can only, only LA can see my face right now. <laughs> but, like, again, lofty fucking goals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hell yeah. So take all of this with a grain of salt and appreciate it or hate it uh, and see how it can influence who you are as a magician, as a person as an artist as a you know partner in relationships and life and and you know take magic and allow it to affect you as a person as an individual as a performer as a human and let's let's live life to its fullest that was awesome well you know there's a couple things that we didn't talk about that i would love to talk about with you i feel like we could talk forever um so we'll save that for the next time. Maybe if you're okay. out on the West Coast. or the next there time all the time. Out, next time I come out, you know, we'll make it happen. Uh, but we usually end with uh, the guest talking about the hardest time they were ever fooled. Or Oof. just a really good, memorable time that you were fooled. The hardest really time good. I was ever fooled. And it'll sound a little cliche, but I was, I was fortunate enough. I have never been invited to the Magic History Conference. Yeah. And for Mike Caveney or Jim Steinmeier or any of the guys out there who I've had the pleasure of meeting but who have never invited me to the Magic History Conference, please invite me. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, there was a I year... I am honored that you think they listen to this show. <laughs> there was a year... It gets around. When um, 
I think they've done this a few times, but not often. But yeah. a few times they have presented an effect so important to the magic world they have chose and chosen to um, perform a few performances yeah. of the effect to non-magic history conference audiences. Yeah. Um, so I was lucky enough to attend a public performance of the Hooker Card Rise. Um, and I was... I've been fooled many times. I'm fooled every day by people who walk into tannins. Um, but I was lucky enough to sit in the audience for... It's probably a 25-30 minute show of a rising card. A trick that, you know, is going to fool most people. Like any rising card will fool most audiences for about 5, 10, 15 seconds. And then you're bored and you want to move on. But I watched what I remember to be 25-30 minutes of a card rise over and over in different uh, circumstances and tremendously fooling every time and kind of brain frying to a frustrating point um, but it truly was a magical experience both in the presentation from the actual performance but also the presentation of you know you're sitting there and witnessing history you're witnessing something that was first created in a drawing room setting I believe here on the east coast and I think in Brooklyn um I think the hooker card rise uh, was first performed in Brooklyn, and it was a mystery that was uh, truly unsolved and not, you know, the information was not passed on, and and the folks in, you know, that are created the his, the history conference from John Gunn, Jim Steinmeier, and Mike Caveney, and, and they reconstructed what this lost piece of magic was. So the you asked the moment when I've been astonished or fooled, um, it was both by the method. I was truly astonished and fooled by the method, but more astonished and fooled by the, uh, the impact that this lost piece of information made on the lives of so many individuals and the fact that they spent the time to recreate and learn um, this piece of information. Yeah. So it, it existed in, in an astonishing way on so many levels. Yeah. Um, and as a student of magic, I truly appreciated that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> And we were asked at the end of that to fill out a little piece of paper that was, I believe it was asking us to basically hypothesize how it was done. If I remember correctly, it was like, what did you think? Um, and I truly wrote, no idea. <laughs> um, and maybe it was, maybe the question was phrased slightly differently. I don't remember what it was. Sure. But, but why guess? I was fooled. Yeah. And I loved being fooled in that moment. And I love being fooled all the time. So that was a moment of truest on it. That's great. That's a great story, too. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Adam. Sure. Till next time, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Everybody come to Tanitz. Thanks, Elliot. It was a pleasure to <laughs> sit here with you and, and Ricky uh, and to be part of the uh, Art of Magic podcast. Oh, thank you. It was great to finally really talk to you forever. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, email me at podcast at artofmagic.com to let me know your thoughts, or join the conversation at the Facebook group dedicated to Magical Thinking listeners. You can find it by searching for Magical Thinking Podcast on Facebook, and give us a like over on the Facebook fan page while you're at it. If you enjoyed the show, share the episode or episodes that you found most interesting and inspiring, and let people know what you got out of it. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers.